Greetings ladies and mental gents and welcome to this batch video for the web novel Out of Space taken from the website Royal Road. I hope that you enjoy and if you do, please consider supporting the channel. Chapter 61 Green City Captain, the sailing ships are exiting our area of operations. The UAV won't be able to track them much longer. The operator reported as he piloted the UAV from his console. Do you want to follow the ship? Blake looked at the map, calculating the distances between the ship and the base. All right, follow it till the UAV has 40% power remaining and return to base. Aye, sir. I think we need to launch another UAV recon these islands south of us. Blake pointed to the map. Need to find where the goblins are hiding, especially if they're ships. Ford nodded. We can set up a UAV controller at the mining station. Could give us enough range to cover the islands. He looked at the map. The islands look like they have appeared to be formed out of volcanic activity. Ford scrolled through his tablet. We got to wait until tomorrow afternoon to launch. Currently, we have one UAV on standby and the remaining UAV is under maintenance. For the two others, one is training the ship and another is covering the pass. The UAVs are all booked out. Noted. Send the techs first to set up the UAV controller at the mining station. Once maintenance is complete, we can fly the UAV over, Blake says. Saves us some time. Ford nods as he went to his own console. He starts assigning new jobs and missions for the crew. As the morning breaks, Blake was woken up by an aide. He took a nap in his office sofa, informing his aide to wake him up when the day breaks. He washed up in the bathroom, feeling refreshed, and headed back into the bridge. Sir, the search and rescue convoy has departed. ETA, one hour, twenty minutes to reach the area of operations. The bridge crew conformed him as they asked the status reports. The sailing ships has left the channel an hour ago, and there are no signs of any goblin ships around. Got it. Thanks. Blake accepted the daily report from the crew and sat down in his chair, reading the full report as his aide handed him a cup of steaming caffeine. Hey, Mills, how you doing, buddy? Lambert pulled the roller chair over to the tank where Mills was submerged in. The greenish fluid bubbled as oxygen was pumped into the tank constantly. Mills, Lambert wrapped against the clear plastic. Mills floated inside the tank and his burnt skin removed by a laser and now was recovering in the fish tank, a biochemical cocktail of polymorphic drugs, nanites and healings as sisters. Wearing a breathing device, Mills opened his eyes to the tank, seeing Lambert and a few other marines wearing medbay gowns gathered around the tank. Hey there, pretty. How's the vacation? Lambert joked. You look like a newborn baby. Mills gave him the finger. His wounds mostly recovered from the restored by the medical soup. He pressed his big red release button on the top of the tank opened. Mills slowly climbed out of the tank with the assistance of the built-in steps and sat on the lid, removing his mask as he breathed hard. His lungs had to be reconstructed due to him breathing in superheated air that turned his lungs into middle raw steaks. Over 80% of his skin was burnt away, so did all of his hair. His corneas had melted and had to be removed and repaired. Even his voice box was damaged. What? What are you bastards doing here? He rasped, breathing hard as he climbed down and had all his stamina. Hey, take it easy, Cooper said with concern in his eyes. You just got some new lungs. Take it slow, man. Moles nodded, out of breath to make any response. 
The rest of the marines climbed up and carried him down gently from the tank, putting him on the bed. So, what are you all doing here? Mills asked again as he rested. Skimming! <laughs> the whole gang laughed. Well, not really skimming, we just had a bit of disagreement with the local food here. You mean the untested inedible stuff? Dr. Sharon entered the bay. You all could have died, she fumed. Why did you do that for? Have you guys no sense? Um, madam, the surveying team dared us to test the stuff that they bring back in exchange for credits to the VRE room. Lambert scratched his short, cropped hair in embarrassment. What? For more credits to use the entertainment room? You guys can bet your lives. Sharon roared. Do you think this is funny? I got more important cases to deal with rather than you kids. If you want to die that much, I can help you. Sorry, madam. The whole gang straightened into parade attention. No more dares, madam. All right, I'll take your words for it this time around. Dr. Sharon lowered her voice, her temper cooling down after giving the marines a piece of her mind. Now get back to your beds and rest, and don't disturb the rest of the patients. Aye, aye, madam. They all gang dispersed from the bay, giving Mills a wave and a wink. See you around, Mills. Dr. Sharon shook her head, wondering what it is in their brains of those marines. Eh? How are you feeling, soldier? She turned her attention to Mills. Better, ma'am, Mills replied. My insides feel itchy all the time. That's good. Means that they're heating up fine. Dr. Sharon made out a pen light and shone it into Mills' eyes, checking his irises. Your corneas are looking better. After another few more days of treatment in the tank, you should be fully recovered. But you need to do some physio to restore your stamina. Thanks, ma'am. Mills replied, I think I slept more than, than enough. Can't wait to get back out of here. Take it easy, soldier, Dr. Sharon said while going through the medical readouts. Rest more and don't get into any trouble like your friends. Yes, ma'am, Mills meekly replied. Captain, the SAR reports that we have found a single survivor. Comms Officer Clara looked towards Captain Blake. They are on their way back. So... The UAV has spotted more sailing ships off the coast. They are heading for the elven ship. The UAV operator called out. It looks like goblin ships. How many? Blake asked, turning his attention back to the technical screen. Four, five, seven, seven ships, sir. Blake looked at the screen, watching seven ships with oars pursuing the elven vessel. I don't think that they'll be able to catch up with the elven ship, Blake thought. True enough, less than an hour of trying to close the gap of the Elven ship, to no success. The goblin pirates turned around to head back to where they came from. How much power does the UAV have left? Blake asked the operator. 57%, sir. Follow those goblin ships, Blake ordered. See where the hideout is. The operator, wearing the VR bulbous helmet, piloting the UAV towards the retreating ships, keeping a distance of one kilometer away in the sky. After another hour of tracking, which the pirates headed seaward along the islands and looped into a natural cove. Blocked from the view of the dormant volcano, a city appeared in the opposite side. The only way to spot the city is to fly over the volcano or travel around the island. Several large makeshift piers struck out the skeletal fingers along the sheltered cove. Dozens and dozens of galleys berthed next to the piers and the same large ships, most likely prizes that they have captured. Sunken ships of all shapes and sizes could be seen in the clear water. 
their rotting moss jutting out from the waves. Dozens of dry docks could be seen, lining the coast with skeletal frames of even more ships under construction. Hundreds of thousands of goblins could be seen moving around the ships in the tidy streets. Behind the backdrop of the busy harbor, a massive ramshackle city could be seen in the crude dwellings made out of mud and wood sprawled haphazardly around the coast all the way up the volcanic mountainside. Cave openings could also be seen, dotted the sides of the dormant volcano mixed with what appeared to be farms of some kind. Oh my god, Blake stared at the screen. How many goblins are there? He tried to count the number of ships laid up against the piers and gave up when he reached 40. He noticed most of the ships appeared to be badly in need of repairs. The whole bridge crew stared in fascination at the goblin city. There must be thousands and thousands of them. Sir, UAV is below 40%. Do you still want the UAV to continue its mission or return to base? The operator reported. How much power is needed to return? Blake asked the operator. The operator pondered for a while before replying, Sir, due to the strong winds flying here, flying the UAV back will eat up roughly another 35% of the remaining power or more. Damn. Alright, pull back the UAV for now, Blake said. Fire up the standby UAV. I want eyes on that city. End of chapter. Chapter 62. Interrogation. Blake's footsteps echoed down the dimly lit hatchway. He walked down the deepest level of the ship. Exposed wall panels and empty compartments showed how the ship had been salvaged for parts and materials. Blake climbed down the final set of stairs, his boots clanging against the metal plating on the decks and came upon a checkpoint manned by a marine and two security crew members. Sir! The three men stood to attention and saluted Blake. At ease, Blake returned the salutes, the prisoner awake. Yes, sir, the marines yelled. Exo Ford and the others are all inside waiting for you, sir. He gave a nod and the security crew unlocked the hatch, spinning the door wheel manually to slide open the hatch. Carry on, Blake said, before he ducked his head and entered the hatch into the lockup. Cubes of clear armor glass separated evenly around the room. A small crowd could be seen gathered around a single glass cell. Blake waved away the salutes of the two sentries on duty and walked between the rows of cells, passing by a cell where two goblins were squatting down and drawing on some bones. He reached the group gathered before the glass cell, where the single elf dressed in an orange prisoner one-piece sat on a small, bolted bed, staring blankly at the glass walls. Gathered around the cell were Exo Fort, Dr. Sharon, Princess Shireen, Lord General Joseph, Magister Thorne, and a few aides. He can't see us, Shireen asked Dr. Sharon. She waved her hand in front of the glass wall as an elf prisoner. No, he can't. These walls are optically armored glass. We can control what he sees. Now, it is set to mirror mode, so he can't see us, but we can see him. Dr. Sharon's explanation confused the elves. What kind of sorcery is this? Is it even possible? Captain, you're here just in time. Ford noticed Blake approaching. We're about to start the interrogation. A young man in an officer uniform saluted Blake. Sir, I will start the interrogation, but I must stress one thing. We have no ways to verify the truth of what he says. First Lieutenant Tavar first joined the crew as part of intelligence department of the ship. Before that, he was a graduate from naval intelligence. 
This was his first assignment on board a space-faring ship which ultimately landed him here. So far, he'd been working on gathering as much information regarding this world as possible. Standing before the glass wall, Lieutenant Tavar pressed his palm against the glass. A handprint scanner tallied his prints before the door slides open. The prisoner wore a pair of leg cloths and a collar imbued with runic carvings jerked his head in surprise, seeing the human entering. Tavar dragged a chair into the cell with him and the maroon door closed seamlessly without any traces. Tavar sat in the chair down in the corner of the cell and set it down, watching the elf without any expression. Finally, after a while, the elf broke the silence. What creature are you? A human, Tavar replied in common tongue. Do you have a name? Human, the elf observed Tavar closely. What manner of creature is that? Tavar shrugged, ignoring his question. Do you have a name? He repeated his question. I am Sir Keen Uther, Lord of the Order of the Fall Knights. Keen stood up proudly. You will release me or face the consequences. The gold rose owls recoiled backwards upon hearing the name and title, causing Ford to ask, Is he famous? Famous? Joseph looked to Ford, his eyes widened in shock. That's the Lord of Death himself. Well, that title's so corny. Dr. Sharon quipped, making Blake and Ford choke back at their laughter. He destroyed countless villages and towns, and he even captured an entire city of hundreds of thousands of people with just an order of knights, Joseph explained. Tavar pressed his ear bead against his hand, listening to Joseph's description of Keen. So you are the Lord of Death, Tavar held his two fingers up to make a quote gesture. Now that you know who you're dealing with, you lowlife, release me at once and I will spare your life. The elf spoke in an arrogant bearing. Now, now, there's no hurry for that. Tell me about the Empire, Davis said. I am very curious about your country. Why must I listen to you, lowlife scum? You must be some kind of bastard breed. Your ears do not even have the same people. Keen raged. Your mother got assaulted by goblins and you are the bastard child. <laughs> not really. Tavo smiled at the elf brightly in spite of all the insults that were thrown at him. No, seriously, I'd like to know more about the Empire. Why do you want to know more? Keen's eyes narrowed in suspicion. Well, Tavo leans forward and whispered, I'm thinking of defecting to the Empire, but, but I want to know what kind of place the Empire is like, and is it powerful enough to protect me from my own people? Tavar looks around the cell and spoke in a hushed whisper. You know how powerful the spells my people have, so I want to know if the Empire has the power to stop those spells. If not, why would I want to defect to your country? What? Is he serious? Shireen had her face almost glued to the glass walls. She spun around in anger. You are his lord. Are you going to let him betray you? Blake held his hand to calm the fuming princess. Chill out, it's a ploy. Hush now and watch the show. Keen looked at the human in surprise. Maybe I can make use of the human to escape and also get a strange weapon and spells from him. Why would you defect? They sent me here to die. I want to stay alive so I can get my revenge. Tavar said simply, The enemy of my enemy is my friend. 
The enemy of my enemy is my friend. Keen repeated those words back to himself. I see. He nodded and smiled. Very interesting. So, what can you offer and what do you want to know? Keen sat back on his bed, he leaning forward and whispering back. Spells that can one-shot dragons, the thundersticks you saw, and how to create more of them, Table replied. Also, a way for you and me to escape this empire's borders. Good! You get me those, and I promise you, under the name of the Order of the Fall Knights, I will grant you protection, lands, and even a noble title in the empire. Ian promised in a solemnly manner. What do you want to know about the empire? Now we're talking. Tabor thought gleefully to himself. Dumbass. Tell me about the Empire armies. How strong are they? Unknown to the elf inside the cell, the humans had laced his food with drinks with a serum that relaxes the user's brain, making them more talkative. Like a weak form of truth serum, it makes the user think that he's in control of what he's saying and doing. And so Keen happily answered all the questions asked by Tabor the whole day thinking of how he managed to win over a human with the powerful magic and weapons. Blake and the rest of the group filed out of the three hours after hearing the prisoner talk about the Empire troop strengths and weaknesses. Blake decided to call it a day and left the rest of Tavar and his intel department to handle everything. Joseph caught up with Blake and said, My liege, if what he said is true, how are we about to withstand the full might of the Empire, a standing army of over half a million soldiers? Blake slowed his steps and said, There is no point in worrying about that now. We have other worries that are present in front of us now. We can only solve those first and be able to focus on preparations against the Empire. Blake stopped and turned, forcing the whole group to stop. All right. Here's the gag order. No one is to spread a word about the strength of the Empire's army. I know half a million is a lot, but we can't have panic spreading amongst the people. We will plan on how to handle this in a proper way. Understand? Aye, Captain. By your order, liege. Good. Now we have today's problems to resolve. Let's get back to work. Once Lieutenant Tavar finishes his interrogation, we'll have a meeting on this. With that, Blake and his team left the area. Oh, my God, Petty Officer Ivan froze as he heard the captain said. He was behind a hidden section of the hull, refitting his illegal makeshift still, making potato vodka. When he heard footsteps approaching, half a million of those crazy blue elves, and the captain wants to fight them, he thought in panic to himself. We're so wrecked. End of chapter. Chapter 63. Descent. Petty Officer Ivan sneaked a peek around the corner, seeing that no one around outside the armory, he whispered, Raman, you there? Sergeant Raman, hearing the name, stuck his head out of the armory hatch. Ivan, what's up? You got a new batch of vodka, he grinned. Yeah, no. I mean, I got something more than that. Ivan entered the armory and looked around, making sure no one else was inside and shut the hatch. What's wrong? Ramon narrowed his eyes in suspicion, wondering what was wrong with Ivan. I got some really bad news, man. Ivan said nervously as he poured out what he heard earlier from the lower decks. Seriously? Ramon widened his eyes in surprise at the news. That's true. 
Heard those stuffy elves and the bossman himself said so, Ivan nodded. Don't tell anyone else, man. We need an exit plan, Ramon said as he sat down and thought for a while. We can't stay here anymore. But how are we going to survive out there, Ivan asked. You want to go over to the Blue Boys? We might not have to, Ramon waved at Ivan closer and whispered his plan into Ivan's ear. You understand, Ramon asked when he finished explaining his plan. You know what to do. You sure it'll work out, Ramon asked. I am not too sure about it. Come on, we'll be like kings, Ramon said confidently. Just follow the plan. Got it, Ivan nodded. Once my side is done, I'll contact you. Tell no one, okay? Ramon and Ivan opened up the armory hatch and looked around outside before leaving. Ramon smiled contently as his plans are finally placed into action. Blake entered the med bay and found Dr. Sharon speaking with the sailor in the search and rescue team had brought back two days ago, laying on the hospital bed. Doc, Blake called out, a moment of your time, please. Dr. Sharon paused in conversation with the elf and walked over to Blake. How is he? Blake asked. Well, other than the torn muscles on his back, he's doing quite well. Gave him a good blood transfusion and he woke up today, Dr. Sharon replied. Is he lucid enough for some questions? Blake asked, watching the graying elf dressed in a medbay gown lying on the bed. Yes, but don't excite him too much. His stitches might come off. Dr. Sharon advised, leaving Blake over to the bed. Hello, Amar, this is Captain Blake. He has some questions for you. Dr. Sharon introduced the captain. It's all right, he's a friend. Hello, sir. I'll try my best to answer as much as I can and know of. The elf appeared to be anxious and short-eared people. It's okay. I just want to know what your role in the ship. Where did it depart from and its destination? Blake spoke calmly. And what happened along the way? Oh, all right. I'm the ship's carpenter from the merchant ship of the Wave Dancer. We left the port and first and is headed towards the Bluewood Empire port city of Duel, all the way north of the shipment of iron, copper, cloth, and seeds. Amar said, We had a massive storm off the coast of the Goblin Sea before stopping for repairs. He adjusted his lying position on the bed and continued, Due to the storm forcing us to make landfall, our ship had to pass through the channels between the Goblin Islands and the mainland, and if we would normally avoid sailing this area. We got ambushed by five Goblin raiding ships that we managed to fight them off. But in the process of doing so, the top mast was badly damaged, and we didn't have any more spares to jerry-rig. The captain ordered us to make for land and cut down some trees for repairs, but we got attacked by monsters. The old elf moaned, Am I the only one left? Is the wave dancer still around? Sadly, you are the only one we found. As for the ship called the wave dancer, we saw her sailing away, Blake said. Oh, the old elf looked crestfallen. I see. Why couldn't you sail back over the islands and avoid the goblins? Dr. Sharon asked. The currents in the channel are quite strong, and from what I heard, the slave mage boy the captain brought couldn't cast a proper wind spell. Mar explained, and with winter approaching, the trade winds will change. The ship could be stranded in the open sea. I see. Thank you, Amar, Blake said. Rest more and don't worry. We will help you find your way home after you have recovered. Thank you, kind sir, the elf thanked Blake, who waved it off. 
If you need to ask me more questions, feel free to. You are my saviors. How are the wounded? Blake asked as he left the ward. Let's visit them. And he followed Dr. Sharon around the med bay. Ford stood watching the topography of the island that they dubbed Goblin Island. Several icons were interposed over various locations indicating points of interest. Shipyards, docks, warehouses, barracks, housing, etc. They were labeled on the map, all courtesy of the regular UAV fights over the past two days. A total of 73 Goblin ships were counted, with another 24 under various stages of completion. Their positions littled it all over the map. If only we had some fighter bombers, we could burn the place down, Ford thought. The only way into the harbor is the hidden cove and a landing force from the volcano site is too exposed. The rest of the island is covered in lush blues and scandy beaches. It will make a great place for a resort for some R&R. Ford frowned in worry. Half a million troops to our north and a bloody goblin stronghold to our south. And God knows where those giant wolves are hiding. He looked at the numbers entered into the logistics system database on supplies and housing. At least he managed to stock up enough supplies to last over the winter. The woodfolk of the elves had been helping out foraging and even using the lifeboats landing parachutes to make extra coats for the coming winter. The crews had stripped the electronic heaters and laid kilometers of wiring underground, connecting the heaters with the power generators, providing heat for the cold nights. Hopefully, the construction of public housing for the elves could be completed within a month, and everyone would have a warm roof over their heads. Ford admitted that the elves might look slim and pretty looking, but they were quite hard-working and earnest in their ways. At least we have some good news, he thought, swiping his tablet screen as the gunpowder results. The few crew members who had drafted into becoming elementary chemists came out with sulfurous black powder. 70% nitre and 30% charcoal and ignited using an electronic fuse for firing. The use of sulfurous black powder would only reduce the amount of fouling and corrosion on the metallic parts of the weapon. It would also reduce the amount of smoke produced. And, of course, they do not have to go mine the sulfur in the volcanic areas. Charcoal could be easily made by burning wood in an enclosed container, and at the same time, the byproducts of heat could be used to boil water for steam to generate electricity. And without sulfur in the black powder mix, it makes it safer to handle. But the problem with sulfurless black powder is the high ignition temperature required. In addition, the sulfur helps to reduce the black powder ignition temperature, meaning a spark would ignite it easily. Whereas without sulfur in the mix, a simple spark wouldn't be enough to ignite the black powder at all. Not only that, they still did not have the proper percussion cap or primer developed yet. The amateur chemists are all still figuring it out how to synthesize the mercury filament. Lucky, so far the test results of the electronic firing looked promising, but the problem is the production of the electronic firing fuses as they don't have the stores of lithium to make batteries for the fuses. Either that, or the manual crank is required for the creating of an electrical current to ignite the black powder, which will greatly reduce the rate of fire of the bolt-action rifle designs that they were planning on as the shooter would be required to clank the dynamo several times before squeezing the trigger. The fabrication team have a prototype soon. Once that is settled, all the kinks worked out. 
it would be put into production and the training of the elves would begin. The marines and sentry teams will also learn the new weapon and also how to fight with swords, just in case. And the sailor, with his skills in a ship carpenter, if he could be recruited, we can make our own ships for fishing and a deterrent against the goblins, or even do trading with the isles for much-needed necessities, Ford thought. Guess I need to push the idea out to everyone in the next meeting, Ford spoke to himself. Hope nothing else will go wrong. End of chapter. Chapter 64. Guns. The first flakes of snow drifted down overnight, turning the whole landscape into a world of white by the next morning. Dressed in a navy grey environmental suit, Blake strolled down the newly constructed city with Princess Serene, who was bundled up in thick furs, her snow boots crunching on the soft snow. Strips of lighting salvaged from the ship's hatchways and repurposed as street lamps lined the sides of the street. A couple of older Alvin children had been seen shoving snow off the roads while the younger ones were playing with the snow. A half-track painted in red with both common and English wording on its front and sides, indicating that it was a public bus, pulled up next to the bus stop where the queues of elves and some humans boarded the bus. The area where the elves previously pitched their tents were all removed and a city square was built at its place. Now dozens of wooden stalls and carts replaced the tents, turning the square into a lively market. Several storefronts surrounded the square were still under construction, with more residents available above the stores. The city is starting to look more lively compared to the time when we first came here, Shireen commented, looking around the market with interest. Yes, it sure is, Blake agreed, remembering the first month when they landed here. It's more lively now. Fresh produce from the hydro farms and greenhouses salted and smoked meats, eggs from the bird verums and the pico-picos, to milk and wool from the mufflos laid amongst the stalls. The owls traded daily necessities with each other with colorful plastic chits issued by the humans. Each red chit was valued at a single meal in a public canteen, while green chits were valued at five meals and a blue chits at ten. Each family or a single owls were given enough chits for two weeks' worth of food from the canteen, and for each job they worked, they would pay it in the equivalent amount of chits for the hours they put in. After watching the bustling crowd for a while, Blake led Shireen back towards the covered jeep parked down the street. The driver, seeing the two of them returning, started the engine. To the academy, Blake said to the driver, who nodded and drove off. Passing the newly built public housing, Shireen was glad that she gave her allegiance to the humans. To be able to finish constructing houses over 2,000 other people in less than two months was an accomplishment that no one could have done except for the humans. What are you thinking about? Blake asked, seeing the princess staring intently out the windows. You humans are so powerful. Even if you say it's not magic, Shireen said, to be able to do so much in so little time... It's so amazing, they're nothing short of magical. Ah, thank you, Blake smiled, but all of these technologies and innovations were developed and perfected over hundreds and thousands of years. We learn and improve as we move along. I see. Shireen sat back in her chair. But our ancestors had been here for hundreds of years, yet we did not develop like the humans do. Blake scratched his head. 
Well, I guess because we did not have magic, so we can only improve in other ways. The jeep slowed to a stop beside a large three-story complex, with its own walls and gate. Sir, we're here. The driver parked the jeep on the lots allocated for vehicles. Blake and Shireen stepped out to the cold, meeting Magister Thorne, who was waiting in the sheltered porch for them. Welcome, welcome! Thorne greeted them excitedly. Hello, Master Thorne, Shireen did a curtsy, which Thorne quickly pulled her up. No need for formalities, let's get where it's warm and out of the snow. Thorne led the two of them into the building. Shireen removed her coat and hung it on the side of the doors and followed an excited Thorne down the hallway while looking around curiously. It was her first time in the academy. Blake said, So much to Thorne, how is the school doing? He had come before when the building was finished, during all the facilities for teaching the elves and the humans on the ways of science and magic. Blake built the academy as an institute of learning so that the newly joined elves can be educated with the knowledge of the humans, making them capable of working in the skilled jobs and other fields of expertise. Blake had invited Thorne to be in charge of the magical studies and also as the headmaster of the academy knowing that he had experience of being one in the past. While Dr. Sharon holds the vice-principal role, teaching modern medicine and science, Thorne led them through several doorways and finally into another wing of the school. Here we are. Thorne waved them into a workshop. Tables with vices and clamps set evenly filled the room, and a large chalkboard adorned the wall, where drawings of a rifle could be seen. Chief Matt, Ford, Lieutenant Frank, and Staff Pike, standing in front of the teacher's table, sat on the side of the chalkboard was fiddling with something. As the trio approached the group at the table, they could hear the Pike's voice. It's not very practical if it's designed to be built this way, but what happens if it breaks? Oh, Captain, Princess, Chief Matt greeted the newcomers as he spotted them. The rest turned and gave the greetings. Just in time. In time for what? Blake asked, looking at the two rifles on the table. The prototypes are out. Oh yes, we have two prototypes, Matt said cheerfully. This, he points to the top rifle made out of local wood and metal stampings, is designed by the Marine's armorer. He worked the bolt of the rifle, pulling the bolt back, and the hands of Blake's rifle who peered into the chamber of the rifle. It uses a simple and reliable electronic firing circuit that ignites the black powder cartridges that we came out with. Matt held up a bullet cartridge and pointed to the tip. 6.5mm caliber soft tip for the projectiles, as the current bullet's molds for the marines are already 6.5mm. No point to retool them. The brass is for the casings. He flips the cartridge and displays the rear end, showing the tiny hole when coated with a grey substance. No primer for the cartridge, instead we have a 0.5mm hole for allowing ignition of the black powder with an external means. The hole is coated with a local tree sap that is waterproof and keeps the black powder from grains from falling out. Matt took the rifle from Blake and dry fired it. The bolt extracts the cartridge out of the chamber and, when pushed forward, loads a new one into the chamber from a 10-round box magazine. Once the bolt is knocked in place, squeezing the trigger will fire the electronic circuit inside the bolt and firing its round. Matt used a pair of pliers and pulled the butt pad off the rifle to show Blake. 
pair of 12-volt batteries powers the electronic firer, good for over a thousand shots before needing to be replaced in the batteries. He set the rifle down. Very nice, but why not automatic rifles? Blake asked. Black powder would fill up gas-cooperated or recoil-operated gun systems, making it jam, Matt shrugged. Well, that and the constant recoil would probably break the shoulders of an unenhanced human, so till we have a smokeless powder, it's a bad idea. I see, Blake said, nodding, while Shireen was totally lost. Now this design actually came up by Magister Thorne. Matt points to the next rifle on the table. Magister Thorne, if you may. Oh yes, Thorne rubbed his hands in excitement. Oh, this is fascinating. Well, Mr. Matt came to me with some questions regarding magical ruins, and uh, we talked about thundersticks. No, firearms. I learned the basics of how a bullet is fired out of this piece of metal tubing from this rifle. Thorne lifted a similar-looking rifle up. Now, instead of using electric kicks for firing out a bullet, I use a fire ruin instead. Thorne worked the bolts expertly, pointing it away from the group and squeezed the trigger. A sharp hiss of flash of light could be seen from the muzzle. Satisfied, Thorne placed the weapon down and removed two small red mana stones from his pockets. Holding the two red stones up, Blake noticed that they were cut into a circular shape with what appeared to be some kind of rune carving on the side of each rune. One of the stones was hollowed out in the middle like a donut. Now, when those two fire runes touch each other, the magic will be triggered and flames will be created. By placing them both on the bolt, when the trigger is pulled, the bolt with this rune, he lifts up a complete circular rune. Well, touch the other rune, and fire will be created, and with the impact the bolt hitting, the flames will be forced into a tiny hole and into the cartridge, lighting the back powder. Thorne explained proudly, I invented this new runic magic by reading the book Basic Concepts of Electricity. End of chapter Chapter 65 Camp Alpha. The shrill of wood and metal being processed resonated dully in the confines of the cargo bay. Machine shop fabricators' robotic arms constantly moving up and down as it took the processed materials from it and finished the product. Hey, Ivan, Chief Gale shouted over the din of the noise, waving his arms to get his attention. Over here. Yes, Chief? Ivan shut the door of the small office, cutting off the racket from the machines. Hey, I take a seat. I got some stuff on the inventory here that says defects, and you signed off on it. Chief Gale handed over a tablet to Ivan to see. There's almost more than a dozen items highlighted. What's wrong with them? Ah, Ivan's eyes studied the inventory list. I think the fabricated printer head was faulty. That's why there are so many items on this list that failed the quality control tests. Okay, then on the next production downtime, get the guys to do a full diagnostic on the fabricator. Chief Gale sighed. The boss needs those manufactured as soon as possible. He looked out the small office window and creates of freshly minted rifles line up in rows. Got it, Chief. Ivan took the opportunity that Chief Gale was not looking at him to quickly wipe a cold sweat from his forehead. I'll get the boys to do a full maintenance run. Mills leapt off the back of the half-track towering public bus, his newly issued boots crunching in the soft snow and the hoisted his duffel bag over his shoulder. 
Welcome to Camp Alpha, he read above the large wooden sign hanging over the gates. Wrapped up in his environmental suit, his exposed skin turned red as the cold winter wind blew against his new, baby-smooth, pale skin. Walls of reinforced concrete several meters high and topped off with razor-sharp concertina wires stretched as far as the eyes could see from where Mull stood. Signs with no transporting written in both English and common decorated the walls at regular intervals. He adjusted his pixelated cap and joined the short queue at the gates, where he spotted Coying inspecting the queuing owl's identity cards. I see, please. Mills could hear Coying asking the owls in front of him. The identity cards were a fusion of technology and magic, as the owls have a system using magic and mana stones to record a person's identity and records with blood. The cards have a photo image taken of the cardholder, his or her name, date of birth if applicable, and address. The cards were also magically linked to the keystone and the radio frequency identity, or IFID, capable. The registration of people was required to put a drop of his or her blood onto the keystone, which will then store the data and the person in the stone. Another drop of blood is then dropped onto a special rune that has been engraved onto the card and synced up with the keystone, like a modern-day keycard reader. This way, if the card holder that can be verified if he or she is the actual person holding the card. This measure was put in place as the humans were worried about infiltrating spies or enemies. Even if the card was stolen and used for inspection, they could find out whether or not the person holding the card was the actual person. Mills watched curiously as Coying held up a brown yellow stone set in a pendant, which Coying wore around his neck. The elf had a card in his hand and Coying held the stone over it. Afterwards, it started to emit a soft green glow like a chemstick, which Coying then nodded his head and waved with the elf through. Yo, Coying! Mills gave the greeting as the queue finally reached him. Security's pretty tight. He looks at the four security goons in the black riot gear, armed and navy, grey environmental suits. Hey, out of the hospital, Coing replied, taking in a handhold scanner. Ooh, looky here, somebody's got promoted. He gestured to Mills' new lawn's corporal stripe at his sleeve. God damn, you look so pretty, Coing teased. What skincare products are you using? Can I pull on your cheeks? About damn time, Mun grinned as he tilted his head to the side, allowing Coin to scan the RFID chip embedded in the back of his neck. And frick you, understand? <laughs> Babyface Mills is angry. Coin laughed, much to the amusement of the rest of the guards. Anyway, staff is pretty angry that the sneak attack on the pass... He puts away the scanner after it beeps in confirmation. As all worried about the magical mimics and doppelgangers and stuff, so everyone in and out needs to be checked and verified. Damn, I heard about that attack in the med bay, Bull said. Crazy son of the witches. Yeah, well, you better drop your stuff and report to staff. Coing pointed to the Camp Alpha, giving Mull's direction to the barracks. It's pretty bare compared to Camp Pendleton back on Earth, but it is cozy enough. Oh, sounds lovely. Mills rubbed his cold hands together. What's with all the owls coming in? Some of them are here doing construction work for the base. Others are Goldie's soldiers coming to for boot camp, Coying replied. Higher-ups want them trained to be the best marine standard or at least proficient in modern warfare tactics. Wow, 
That's gonna be a challenge, Mill said. Also, heard scuttlebutt that we will be needing to turn into our arms and reissued with new weapons and training, Coing said in a low voice, except for those guarding critical posts. What? Are they giving us swords and shields, Mills cursed, so are we going caveman with sticks and stones? Well, not really, one of the guards said. Heard that it's going to come black powder rifle or something. Whoa, Mills looked surprised. Muzzle loaders? Coing shrugged again. Like I said, rumors. You better get going. Right, see you around. Mill strolled through the gates and headed towards the direction of the barracks. As he passed through the gates, several lines of gabions covered the gate internally, where a couple of bunkers could be seen too, making anyone forcing an entry into the camp into a fielding field. Damn, Pike is serious about security crap. Mills whispered as he navigated his way past several barriers and into another gate. Finally, after walking for a while, he found the barracks he was looking for, a squat three-story concrete structure with tiny windows and firing slits on the walls as the upper floor sat next to an open field with a couple of flagposts flying the Marine Corps flag and the UNM national flag. He entered the building and found Corporal James as the duty officer of the day, sitting behind a table, reading something on his tablet. Hey, Corp, guess who's back? Oh, crap. James gave a dramatic groan as he looked up to see Mills standing there grinning. My feasal days are over, and they even gave you a candy stripe. What are they thinking? <laughs> I know you missed me, Mills grinned wider. Come on, show me your love. Tell me you missed your daddy. He dropped his duffel bag and opened his arms wide. Come to daddy. In your dreams, boy, James stood up, grinning and clasped Mills's arms. Welcome back. Good to see you all okay. <laughs> it's good to be back. I missed all the kidding, Mills replied cheekily. Well, you probably will be assigned to do something else for the time being till you get back to shape fully, James said as he pulled out a file from his tablet and consulted the moment before saying, Your bunk is on the second floor, door 205. You are sharing it with Bartley. How's the big guy doing? Mills asked as he picked up his bag. He all right? I didn't see him visit in the med bay. He's pretty quiet lately, James said, handing over the set of keys. You better go ask him yourself. Gotcha, Mills replied as he headed back upstairs, looking for his room. Finding his room, he gave a couple of knocks on the door before turning the doorknob open. Knock, knock! Mills! Bartley dropped the gun barrel that he was cleaning and bounced up from the floor. You're back! In the flesh, Mills smirked and dumped his bag on the side. Why didn't you visit? Um, I, I, I was worried that you wouldn't make it. Bartley said in a small voice as he hunched down on the bed. I didn't dare to see you gone, just in case. God damn it, I'm hard to kill, Mills said, looping his arm around Bartley's massive shoulders. Come on, big guy, have a little faith in me. Anyway, you save me. If you don't come through the enemy lines and pull me back, Mills patted Bartley's back, I would have really died back there. Well, you are my friend. It's the least I could do for you. Barty replied. No, not a friend, Mills said in a serious voice. Brother, thanks for saving me, brother. End of chapter. Chapter 66, Recruits. 
Arvin Silverhan stood in the line waiting with the other people for the arrival of the magical red wagon at the bus stop. He was dressed in a simple cob consisting of hand-woven linen shirt and a thick leather plants, covered in a thick muffalo fur coat and his army cloak. Slung over his shoulder, he carried what little possessions he had, while the army-issued sword was belted on his waist. His most prized possession, a silver brooch with a motif of a spiked rose with a sword behind it, which indicated his rank in the army. Bronze for a five-man leader, silver for a fifty-man leader, and gold for a hundred-man leader. He proudly wore the brooch on his left shoulder, pinning his cloak. He joined the army since young, served as a distinction for ten years, and now, nearly twenty-nine years old, as a fifty-man leader, he was told to report to this new camp for retraining. The red wagon soon came into view around the perfectly built streets, made of some material Arvin hadn't seen before in his life. The people in front of him, including some of those humans, started shuffling forwards as the back doors opened and the passengers alighted. He paid with two red chips and the clerk at the booth gave him a ticket stub, which his distance printed on which he pocketed it. Before that, he couldn't imagine precious parchment being used wantonly like this. The changes the humans gave were overwhelming to many. Arvin managed to get a seat next to the window, wondering what this was all about. Soon, the wagon filled up to capacity and the wagon driver gave a few horns better moving the wagon off. Hi, sir, I'm Kant. I'm from Nestor's company, Fourth Lance. The person sitting next to him introduced himself, placing his right palm over his heart. Are you also going for retraining? Yes, my name is Arvin. He replied to the young man next to him, returning to the same greeting gesture. The humans are amazing and strange, yes? Kant leaned over and peered out the window. They claim that they do not know magic, yet they are able to make things that can only be explained as magical. Yes, these things they can create are really magical, Harbin replied, watching the view of the city. Even the ways they wage war are so strange. We now go to learn the ways of war. Kant nodded in agreement. I found the humans during the battle at the pass. I helped this human spot the enemy many times in the distance the eyes can't see. He thought back to the battle, and the human killed the Empire soldiers without even knowing how they died. I was there too, Arvin told his side of the battle. Our shield walls did not manage to hold up against the assault of the Empire mages and shock troops. We nearly fell, but the humans' magical thundersticks turned the tide of the battle. I was saved by the humans, he added. They wore cloth armor and dared to face numbers ten times their own. And they even won the battle. The half-track continued its way out of the city's northern gates and followed the highway towards the grasslands, heading for the place called Camp Alpha. Almost an hour later, the vehicle finally arrived at the camp. The nose plow was half-track was caked with frozen snow, as it plowed the snow away from the roads. The rear doors of the half-track opened and the passengers slowly filed out of the vehicle. The driver stood at the back, reminding the passengers not to lose their ticket stubs for the return trip or it would cost them another chip. Standing in front of the gates of the camp, the elves followed the commands of the human guards. 
lining up the showing their identity cards to the guards who verified it with a keystone. As they entered the gates, another human dressed in thick greyish suit that covered them from head to toe yelled in a mix of English and common, All right, Fomap, look at the lines drawn on the floor and line up accordingly. The elves, confused, followed the instructions as best they could, and after several minutes of shuffling around, finally everyone was in position. Oh, my heavens, my grandmother can move faster than you lot, the human yelled, rolling his eyes dramatically. Next time I give you a command, you lot better move fast. Now listen up, you lot may think you already know how to fight and is about to embark on the next big adventure. Well, let me set you straight. My Marine Corps has been around for 338 years, tracing our proud lineage to the United States Marine Corps and through them the Royal Marines of the United Kingdom. My job is to ensure none of you screw up my corps. We are the fiercest warriors ever graced the planet of Earth, and now you would join the proud lineage and uphold the values and tradition of my Marine Corps. We fight and we kill. That is our sole existence here. The elves turned and looked at each other with muttered along amongst themselves, wondering what they have done to be treated this way. People, you will be tested, stressed and put to the limits. We are a proud force. Not once in our history have we been defeated. We will go to places where no one has gone before and kick the crap out of anyone who has pissed on us. From now onwards, we are going to find out who amongst you would be good enough to be a part of my Marine Corps. Arvin looked shocked and stood there wondering what was happening. Isn't he supposed to be here for training to use the human weapons? Why is it now that he is to join the Submarine Corps? He opened his mouth and asked, Excuse me, but I think you've got it wrong there. Yes, recruit? The human smiled gently to Arvin. No, no, there is nothing wrong here. What's your name, recruit? My name is Arvin Silverhand, 50-man leader of the Army of Gold Rose, he said proudly. I was sent here for training to learn about using thunder sticks. The human glanced at the magical device strapped to his arm. Nodding, after a while, he said, Well, recruit Arvin, your name is on the list. Wait, why are you calling me a recruit? I'm a 50-man leader, Arvin argued. Well, I'm Corporal James Bone. From now onwards, regardless of what ranks or nobility you held before in the Gold Rose Army, you are all now recruits. Corporal James stated, If none of you are willing to go through the training, you can wash out right now. But the Gold Rose Army has been disbanded. You have two choices now. Join the Marine Corps or return to the city and find other work. The bus is still waiting outside. Arvin froze. He remembered a few days before the Lord General Joseph gave a speech to all the soldiers, telling everyone that the army will be disbanded. Those willing to continue fighting as a soldier under the humans is to form up to one side, which he did with the majority of the others. They were the given orders and instructions to report to this place. No one. Good. From now onwards, you'll only speak when spoken to. The first and last words out of your mouth will be, Sir. Corporal James paused, watching the elves with an amused smile on his face. It took the elves a few minutes before they realized that they were supposed to reply. A stammering of, Yes, sir, came from the group. 
James looked up in cloudy grey skies and said, My grandmother can shout louder than you. And the proper way to answer is, Sir, yes, sir. Sir, yes, sir, the elves echoed. Never mind, maybe this will help motivate you, Lot. James shook his head. The whole lot assume push-up position. That is, turn 45 degrees to your right and down on your hands, then place them slightly wider than shoulder width apart. Your body should be form a straight line from your ankles to your head. Then you push up position. The owls looked at each other in bewilderment, wondering what was going on. James sighed and gestured for Mills behind him to demonstrate how to get into a push-up position. The elves dropped their bags and gear and soon followed. Now stay in that position, as I was telling you ladies. If you survive the recruit training, you will be a weapon, a minister of death, praying for war. But until that day, you're a pukes. You are the lowest form of life. You are not even freaking beings. You are nothing but an unorganized piece of crap. James strolled down the lines as he continued. Because I am hard, you will not like me. But the more you hate me, the more you will learn. My orders are to weed out all the weaklings who do not pack the gear to serve my beloved corps. Do you maggots understand? Sir, yes sir, the owls moaned out. Bullcrap, I can't hear you, James continued walking down the roll. Sir, yes sir. The elves screamed their lungs out while still in the push-up position. You there, what's your name? James crouched next to Arvin and asked. Sir, Arvin, sir. Arvin yelled out, his face turning red. Bullcrap, you're a recruit break frick from now on. James shouted in Arvin's ear. What's your name, recruit? Sir, recruit big frick, sir. End of chapter. Chapter 67. Boot Camp. Platoon 3, fall in, Corporal James yelled with a bullhorn as the recruits charged out of the barracks and formed up into rows of three with the tallest man at the right marker. The platoon consisted of 28 recruits dressed in long-sleeved grade utility camouflage pants and boots. The quartermaster nearly had a stroke while trying to outfit the entire training camp, but he managed to pull the miracle by having the fabricators run overtime to produce all the materials needed for the recruits. He had all the crew scrape up all the unwanted pieces of clothing and cloth scraps for having the fabricators recycle the materials into uniforms for the recruits. It was 0500 hours local time, another 15 other platoons had also formed up in the massive parade square and stood at attention in the cold winter morning. It had been two weeks since they started boot camp and the yells were slowly shaping up. After the morning reveille, the platoons began their morning workout routine with five basic exercises before moving on to a five kilometer run around the base. All the owls were used to running while carrying heavy shields and wearing heavy armor, so they made quick time with the run. After the run, they rested for a while before heading back to the cookhouse for their breakfast. Lieutenant Frank stood at the top floor of the administrative building of the Camp Alpha with Staff Pike, watching the recruits finish their morning run. Well, physically and mentally the owls are pretty tough, he said, watching the recruits form the frosted windows. Yes, the only problem now is teaching them how to think and react to orders, Pike said. The shipment of rifles will be arriving tomorrow. The instructors had all familiarized themselves with the handling of the new weapon. Great, 
How about ammunition for the weapons? Frank sat down on the desk, powering up his computer. Over 25,000 black powder rounds produced by an autoloader. Current production is 9,000 rounds per week, as long as we have the raw materials. Production will ramp up once the second autoloader is produced by the workshop's fabricators. Pike read the report on his tablet. We will also be issuing the men with swords and bayonets. Frank nodded from his desk. Another 11 weeks before the graduate from the course, bringing our manpower up to another 500 bodies. 448 to be exact, sir, if everyone passes out, Pike replied. We probably will lose 10% due to injuries or other reasons, so roughly 400 will make it through. Pick some of the ones with potential to be instructors, and once this batch has completed their boot camp, prepare the next batch of recruits, Frank ordered. Quartermaster Chen will have plenty of time to cook up the next batch of uniforms and equipment for the intake, and also the workshop should have enough time to produce more rifles. Pike nodded and gave a salute and left the office. 400 to hold the pass against half a million, Frank muttered to himself as he started his work. Am we're lacking everything. Recruit Big Freck Arvin sat with the rest of the platoon in an outdoor training shed, ignoring the cold winter air against his shaven head as he stared raptly at the thunderstick. Corporal James was holding up in his hands. All right, now is the best part of being a Marine. Guns. The rifle was made out of local wood, finished in a dark brown luster. To the owls, it looked like a thin, elongated crossbow without the bow arms, with a wooden handguard almost as long as the metal barrow ending with a blunt nose. This is called a rifle, not a thunderstick, magic stick, or wanking stick. As you have learned in your classes, this here is a bolt-action rifle. James displayed the weapon to the class. This is an M1 bolt-action rune block black powder rifle, also known as a magelock rifle. It uses both magic and technology to work together. It weighs in at 4.19 kilograms with a length of 1.1 meters long and a barrel length of 60 centimeters. It has a polygonal rifling inside the barrel which helps reduce the fouling and also makes it easier to clean. James paraded the rifle around the glass. It has an integrated 10-round box magazine just in front of a trigger guard. It has a rear sliding ramp sights, allowing the shooter to aim up to 500 meters away. It has an effective firing range of up to 730 meters and a muzzle velocity of 621.8 meters per second. For those who do not listen in class, muzzle velocity means how fast the projectile exits the barrel and flies straight at you. James added as the benefit of those who were looking confused. Why is it called a bolt-action runelock? James asked the class, who returned blank faces back. This here is a bolt which requires you to manually pull back and eject the round inside and chambering the new round. He pulled the bolt back, showing the class the open bolt, and three points inside. This here is a fire rune, and pulling the trigger, the hammer fits the rune, like the old ancient flintlocks. Thus, it is called a runelock. Seeing the confused faces on the elves, Jane further expanded patiently. In the days of old, flintlocks were what our ancestors to our modern guns. Flints were used to ignite the black powder as the M1 magelock uses runes to fire. The M1 magelock is reloaded using stripper clips for five rounds each. James held up a five-round clip of 6.5mm, aligned the rounds downwards in the open chamber and pushed the rounds down firmly. 
It can also be reloaded as single rounds of ammunition. Moving on, here is a bayonet lug. James points to the ring-like device near the muzzle. You attach a Type 1 sword bayonet here. He picked up a 40-centimeter-long single-bladed short sword with a straight handguard from the table and inserted the bayonet onto the rifle. Now you have a long spear. James demonstrated a few bayonet thrusts and sweeps from the weapon, much to the elves' appreciation. James removed the bayonet and continued, Now I'll call out each recruit's name. You will be issued with an individual weapon each. Memorize your weapon's serial number. James glared at the recruits. Treat it like your wife or your girlfriend. Make sure you do not lose your weapon. Now, recruit Big Freck. Gun front and center. James commanded, reading from a list of names. Recruit Alphabet. Soon, the whole platoon was issued a mage lock each. They spent the next few hours learning about the parts of the weapon, how to strip and clean the weapons. The elves acted like children in a toy shop, mock-firing and play-acting with the weapons as they sat in the training shed, ensuring that the rifles were cleaned. After that, they ran through a few rifle drills as they had practiced rifle drills days before with wooden mock-ups. They only had an accident when one of them dropped his rifle and the platoon was punished for that, doing 50 push-ups. The next day, after breakfast, after they drew their rifles from the armory, they stood at attention in a perfectly aligned rows on the parade square with the entire batch of recruits, dressed in full battle order, gripping their new rifles tightly. The owls wore a steel coal scuttle helmet printed with blue-gray camouflage with a black H harness and pouches for equipment and ammunition, sword and bayonet attached to a sheath on the harness, completed with the blue-gray digital camouflage battle dress uniforms. Damn, they look smart, Captain Blake, who stood with the princess on the reviewing stand, said. Princess Shireen nodded and smiled charmingly, giving a wave to the formed-up recruits. They feel different, too. They are the future protectors, Captain Blake said, avoiding eye contact with the smiling princess. <clears throat> well, it's good that they're morale to see you encouraging them here. Really? Princess Shireen excitedly turned her head, focusing her large, pretty eyes on Blake, who quickly turned to look at something else. Um, Blake cursed softly. He was sweating even in the cold winter air. Now, recruits, repeat after me. Staff Sergeant Pike stood at attention in front of the battalion of owls. You will repeat the rifleman's creed after me. Sir, yes, sir. The battalion replied loudly. This is my rifle, and there are many like it, but this one is mine. My rifle is my best friend, it is my life. I must master it as I must master my life. Without me, my rifle is useless. Without my rifle, I am useless. I must fire my rifle true. I must shoot straighter than my enemy who has tried to kill me. I must shoot him before he shoots me. I will keep my rifle clean and ready, even as I am clean and ready. We will become a part of each other. I hereby swear before the flag that I will be brave, honorable, disciplined, and vigilant. I swear the screed, my rifle, and myself are the defenders of my country. We are the masters of our enemy. We are the saviors of my life. So be it, until there are no enemy but peace. End of chapter. Chapter 68. Bored. 
Hey, Chief Gale, got a minute. Flight Lieutenant Peter Mitch with the Flight Lieutenant Tommy Kanzi stood outside one of Chief Gale's workshops. The workshop lights were dimmed down as the fabricators were on the downtime and most of the mechanics were off for the day. Chief Gale set his reading glasses down and gestured for the two pilots into his office. What's up, gentlemen? Well, Chief, me and Tommy Boy here are plenty free time at the moment, Peter said as he made himself comfortable on one of the chairs. We were kind of wondering if they were going to tinker around with the haulers. You mean, you two are so bored out of your minds that you hands are itching to fly and crash something, Gale reported back. Both pilots grinned sheepishly. Yeah, we have been helping out the workshops and doing parts maintenance for one system after another. It's not that we've signed up for. Tommy nodded vigorously at the side. It's a waste of our skills, and since the two haulers are just collecting dust sitting there, we thought that if we could do some modifications or something and see if we can get them flying in the atmosphere. Chief Gale rubbed his face and gave their idea some thought. To be honest, these two kids' skills were truly wasted here doing basic maintenance. After a short while... No, oh well, okay. We need all the edge we can against this planet... The two pilots high-fived each other, excited to be doing something else. But I want to see your modifications and designs on file first before you touch the ships. Gale gave his conditions. After that, it gets passed on to the captain. He has final say. Get it? Yes, chief. Both pilots saluted and filed out of his office. By the way, that doesn't mean you get off doing maintenance. Chief Gale yelled at the two pilots, who stared back and pained expressions. How is everything on your end? Roman asked Ivan as they met in a private of the ship's armory. Well, I managed to pull several critical parts out as not meeting quality control and listed them under recycled in the system, Ivan said, pulling out a flask of potato vodka. I also got off stuff we need. Roman patted a large armory container on the side of the combi lock. Now we just have to wait for a good opportunity. Well, do you think it's a good idea? Ivan took a drink from the flask nervously. We'll talk about it later, Raman gave Ivan a warning look as someone hit an intercom outside the armory. Raman glanced at the camera screen and pressed the hatch released. Two other birdie crew members entered the armory. They sat down next to Raman and Ivan and took out playing cards and chips. Yo, Ivan, any more of that vodka? Ivan removed a couple flasks from his bag and handed them over. Twenty creds, as usual. Sure thing, the crew members with tattooed arms counted out the stack of red chips and slid it across the table to Ivan, who placed them in the front of himself. The other crew started shuffling the playing cards and doled out the cards to each player. Same rules as before. As the game progressed late into the night, Raman's pile of winnings grew larger while the other two men's faces grew darker. Finally, the tattooed crew dumped his cards down and gave up. I'm out. You're lucky tonight. Raman smiled. Say, I heard something interesting lately. Think it'll benefit all of us. What interesting news, the tattooed crew member raised an eyebrow. We'll keep this between us strictly, Raman leaned forward and spoke in a low voice. I heard that the Empire... Magister Thorne bent over the laser engraver, watching the manor stone get laser cut into a perfect circle. The fire rune engraved and started appearing like magic, etched by an invisible laser beams, burning the design into the surface of the round-cut rune stone in seconds, followed by an inking device which painted the runic symbol over with magical ink. 
What a wondrous machine! Thorn, who was wearing a pair of protective goggles, looked in some crazed old man with messy white hair and tinted goggles. The runic symbols that he drew was copied exactly and replicated onto the tiny surface in perfect detail. The magical silver ink that had prepared to be used to write the runes of power was inked along with the laser engraving. If he had wanted to do the same detailed work, it would painstakingly take him many hours or even days to carve the runic symbols out, followed by the inking with the silver. But this device does it all in seconds, and even on the surface area as small as the smallest fingernails. Thorn stood up and removed his goggles, thinking back to the weeks before he told Captain Blake that he needed days to prepare each fire ruin with his thunder sticks. Captain Blake just looked at his work and smiled, telling him not to worry at all. How indignant he was at that time. But this device just made him eat his words and pride. He looked at several chests of manor stones, which the princess donated to the humans and wondered what other interesting toys that he could make. Flight Lieutenant Peter and Tommy sat hunched over a computer, looking at the plans for the Boeing 848 Super Space Bus. Both were pilots assigned to fly the UNS Singapore and Space Bus. Well, if we remove the cosmic radiation protection tiles, the airlocks, oxygen recycler tanks, and the directional thrusters, the dual-wing main thrusters, and the armor plating, Tommy pointed to the various parts of the space bus drawings, at least 55% reduction in weight can be achieved, more if we can hollow out the hull and cut away the unneeded parts. The Boeing 848 Super Space Bus was introduced in the early 2070s as an all-purpose space hauler. The bulky and squat angular design comes with a forward passenger compartment capable of carrying 40 passengers and a rear cargo area with over 10 tons of cubic space. The cargo compartment was also modular, allowing the boxy module to be removed, allowing an external cargo container to be carried or an additional passenger module increasing the number of passengers up to 200. Powered by the Rolls-Royce Trident 800 Helium-3 engine, it was capable of short-haul flights between space stations and starships. While not atmospheric-rated and an outdated model, its durability, reliability, and ease of maintenance prompt the UNM Navy to continue to service even in 40 years old design. But if we remove the main thrusters, how are we going to fly? Peter asked, staring at the drawings. We should add in a flight surface controller here and here. Who said that we're going to need thrusters to fly it? Tommy raised his eyebrows. All the helium-3 fuel is taken by engineering for the fuel of the reactors. What we should do is convert the engines to run on electricity instead. Tommy highlighted the stubby wings with the ends of the wings sat thruster units. We modify the wings, add a duct fan and unit instead. Duct fan unit, Peter frowned as he thought about it. You mean like a VTOL craft? Yep. Since the wings are tied in front control systems, we can recode the software to tilt the wings forward and back, Tommy explained. It won't maneuver very well with a non-streamlined structure, nor fast. Peter stood up and stretched his back. It will be like a flying tank. Unless we make the duct fan mounted wings capable of independently rotating forwards and backwards. Tommy cut Peter off. Toning left and right would be a simple task of reducing the power of either one of the fans. Hey, let's check in with that Indian Marine armorer. See if he can design some rockets. Peter's eyes glowed. His tiredness gone. Strap a few rocket pods on it and voila, a flying tank. 
That's a good idea, Tommy. Tommy rubbed his wary eyes. They had been going through the plans for hours. I'm sure the Marines will appreciate the fire support, but we need to cut down on the weight more if we want range and flight time. Hmm. Why can't we use magic to lighten the load? Peter suggested as he lay down on the bunk. I heard that magician Ton, or Corn gave the idea of those rifles powered by magical runes. That's it, Tommy snapped his head. Why didn't I think of that? Magic can help reduce another 20% of weight. We can increase the flight time and range of the ship. Tommy dived into the work, redesigning the space bus, removing non-essential parts and reducing the overall weight of the hauler, while thinking of now to convert the engine to run on electricity, which will in turn be dual-duct fans. He also drew up plans for mounting weapon pods. Finally done, he looked at the 3D design on his computer. Great. All done. Now to find the great magician to find out if his magic can help. Tommy got up from the chair and stretched. Let's go find the magician. And found Peter already asleep in his bed. End of chapter. Chapter 69. After Action Review. Thick, heavy snow covered the plains. Several figures suddenly appeared out of the snow and advanced up the snow-covered terrain and into the edge of the forest. The white camouflage shapes moved with a purpose, keeping as low as possible to the terrain. Acting platoon leader recruit Big Frack Alvin, his helmet covered with white frock and his dressed in a white cloak, waved his section forward and half-crouched his way into the cover of the trees. He peered around the snow-coated leaves on the ever-blue tree. Observing their objective, his platoon was tasked with the pair of covered field glasses. His fellow recruits reached the rallying points and waited for his command for attack. The opposing force dressed similarly, but with the Empire blue coat over their gear, was carrying Empire weapons with shields, blades, and spearheads dulled. There was digging around in the area of their camp, seemingly unaware of their presence. One ear, tell me what you see. Recruit Arvin handed the binoculars to his second-in-command. Recruit Organ, one ear, who, like Arvin, served as an old-timer in the Gold Rose Army, who lost his left ear fighting the Empire forces, thus earning his nickname. One ear took the binoculars and went down on his hands and knees, and the leopard crawled to a better vantage point. He looked at the activity from the enemy camp and counted the number of sentries and their locations, before crawling back to Arvin. I counted eight sentry points, two men each. One ear returned the binoculars one unslung his rifle. They appear to be setting up the camp. They haven't spotted us at all. Arvin nodded. He also counted the same number of sentry posts and guards. Tell section two and three to begin their attack in ten minutes. They are to make as much noise as possible. I want the enemy to think that we're all there. He checked the timepiece while giving the order to his runner, who repeated the order back before moving off, keeping himself low and hidden from the enemy's sights. One year, you take section one on a flanking maneuver to the right. Arvin points towards the low depression on the right flank. Keep out of sight. Use that depression for cover. Do not engage till the enemy is fully committed against section two and three. Understand? Keep out of sight and only attack when the enemy's attention is all on two and three. One ear replied. Got it. Arvin nodded. One ear hurried back into the low crouch to where his section had gathered, and he next turned to his section one. All right, 
We told here, once the enemy rushes out, we fire into their flanks. Till then, keep out of sight. He had his platoon arranged in an L shape. Section 2 and 3 formed the lower parts of the L, while 1 and 4 were at the flanks. Just as ordered, ten minutes later, pops of gunfire erupted from Section 2 and 3's position. Snow erupted from the training bullets impacting against the snow. The bullets were made up of waxy native tree sap, filled with red dye made from the pigment of flowers. The sentries who got hit sat and laid down on the snow and removed their helmets to indicate that they were dead. Yells and shouts of alarm erupted from the opposing falls as the op for camp. And, like a kicked beehive, the men posing the Empire soldiers charged out in the direction of Section 2 and 3. Acting platoon leader Krukrut Arvin, hidden amongst the trees, watched the enemy, formed up a shield wall, and charged into the gunfire where Section 2 and 3 were at. Arvin turned to his men and said, Make ready. Clicks and rattlings of bolts replied from him from his men, removed their safeties and worked their bolts, chambering around in. Seeing the majority of the enemy had taken the bait, Arvin yelled, Fire! And a burst of fire and smoke exploded out from around him as his men fired into the Machenok rifles. The elves had trained well enough in the firing ranges that they could fire at least twenty aimed shots per minute with a bolt action. He waited for the enemy to take the bait and managed to time this volley right at the enemy's flank as they lined up perfectly for his men to enfilade them. The training paint round hammered into the flanks of the shield wall, causing the enemy to cry out in pain and surprise. While the bullets are made out of rubbery wax, it still packed enough kinetic energy to feel like someone poking you very hard with a pointy stick. Suddenly, the snow around Arvin exploded, spraying him with bits of wet snow and red dye, thrown throwing his men into confusion. What? He peered through the gun smoke and spotted the enemy's side of the Machenoks too, and were firing at them. Take cover, they got guns too. Arvin yelled over the blasts of gunfire. He followed his own advice, throwing it down onto the soft wet snow and rolling behind an ever-blue tree. The enemy line exploded into the smoke and more bullets smacked against the hardened tree trunk, shaking the snow accumulated on the leaves down on him. One of his men cried out in shock as paint round smacked against his collar, spraying a dark red dye out, looking realistically like blood. The unfortunate recruit dropped down and rolled about in the snow, screaming pain. Medic! Take out the shooters, Arvin yelled and aimed his mage knock at the enemy. He squeezed the trigger and his rifle muzzle erupted in a cloud of gun smoke, temporarily blocking his view till the wind blew it away. He saw the enemy he shot sitting down on the snow with one hand raised up, indicating that he got hit. Come on, Arvin encouraged his men, pour it on. We worked the bolt of his mage knock and fired again. Suppress them. Suddenly, a chorus of shouts emerged from the far right, as Wanya successfully led a section unnoticed to the rear flanks of the enemy. His section emerged out of the low snow depression, firing the mage knocks as they charged hitting the rear of the surprised enemy. Not long after, a loud whistle blew, and the sounds of gunfire and smoke died down as the exercise came to an end. All right, commander, gather up the rest of the men. Go police up all the spent cartridges, and make sure you got equipment distilled with you. Sergeant Collins spoke in a loud hailer. Get the medics to tend to those wounded in the exercise. 
Hours later, Platoon 3 of the attacking force gathered into a tent where several benches and tables and a display screen were placed. Collins and James stood inside waiting the men to settle down. All right, settle down. What we are doing here is an after-action review, or an AAR. Collins said to the gathered recruits, We will do one of these after every action, so get used to them. Now, I want to say good job on the attack, Collins said looking at Recruit Arben. It was a textbook attack and ambush, properly executed, and even with the surprise part of the enemy had similar weapons, you managed to control your men and counter them, especially when you still had the middle of training. Now, we will be going over every individual of the unit actions as we know and see how we can improve on them. I'll start with ammunition expenditure. Collins turned the mounted display and the graph appeared. We counted on average of 32 rounds of 6.5mm per enemy that got shot. That means that each of you fired at least 30 shots for each of the whole engagement. That low count was 11. Recruit Big Freck. Collins pointed at another chart, but in the first place, you shouldn't even be firing at all. Why did you fire recruit? Sir, this recruit wasn't really doing anything, and the, the, the enemy was just there. So I fired, sir, Arvin replied uncomfortably. You were supposed to be paying attention to everyone else's action. Collins shook his head. Your task of acting platoon leader is to lead. Your weapon was given to you for self-defense, or for something you have to shoot at because you can't get your men to do it in time. Did any of the enemy come close to your position? Collins continued asking Arvin. Sir? No, sir, Arvin admitted. You are there to lead and control the flow of the battle, Collins advised. Lead from the front if you have to, engage if you have to, but keep your eyes on the battle. Understand? Sir? Yes, sir. Arvin replied, nodding in understanding. Recruit Yothan. Collins yelled out, You, my friend, have won the big prize. A hundred and seven rounds. Sir? Yes, sir. Recruit Yothan shot to his feet in attention. Now, recruit Yothan, tell us all, how the freck did you expend a hundred and seven rounds of ammunition? End of chapter. Chapter 70. Promotions. What do you think of the current batch of recruits? Captain Blake asked Lieutenant Frank while sitting in Blake's office with Commander Ford and Staff Sergeant Pike in attendance. Well, physically and mentally, they are quite tough. It's just that we had to brainwash away their notions of how to wage war and train them to follow orders and how to think. Frank gave his opinion of the recruits. Most of them with the willingness to stay in a shield line and die, which is good and bad. Good for the fighting spirit and bravery. Bad for it will be a waste of a well-trained soldier. Frank said, we managed to get them to think for themselves and the overall bigger picture. Blake nodded. All right, according to schedule, they are reaching the last week of the training soon, right? Staff Pike spoke up. Yes, sir. Once they finish the final week of training, they'll pass out successfully. Okay, Blake reached into his desk drawers and pulled out a small felt box. I believe congratulations are in order, Major Frank. What? Major? Frank looked wide-eyed and surprised at the box which Blake had opened to show a pair of embroidered Major Rank tabs. This is a triple promotion. Well, we can't have you as a mere second lieutenant be in command of a battalion, Ford spoke up. 
Everyone in the room smiled and stood up. At the highest authority and a detached command, I, Captain Richard Blake, Captain and Commander of the UNS Singapore, by the power and authority vested in me by the United Nations of Man Naval Command, hereby promote Marine Second Lieutenant Frank Lee to rank of Marine Major. Blake intoned solemnly, as the people presented shall hereby be my witness. Frank stood at attention, his mouth opened in surprise. Major? Holy crap! Congrats, sir, Starpike saluted Frank, while Blake and Ford smiled and shook his hand. Well, Starf, if you don't mind, it'll be an honor for me if you'd put my rank on, Frank said sincerely to Pike. The honor is mine, sir. Pike took the offered rank tabs and removed the butter bars from his uniform before replacing the major tabs that were embroidered in the official emblem of the United Nations in gold thread. Here, Blake removed another box and pushed it to Frank. You should have the honor for this. Frank opened the box and saw a pair of Master Sergeant embroidered rank insignia inside and smiled. Well, congrats to you, Master Sergeant Pike. No crap. Pike swore as he looked at the box offered to him by Frank. Damn, everyone gets promoted. That's the idea, Ford answered. With the new recruits passing out, we need to put more experienced men into command roles, and they need to rank it for it. Also, we will need to come out of sort of officer cadet school to train potential candidates in the offices. Newly promoted Major Frank and Master Sergeant Pike nodded in understanding. We will come out with proposals and training manual for that, Frank said. Good. Now, with the newly trained troops and about to graduate, I will pull out the Navy security section. Blake informed the two Marines. Marines will now handle the exterior threat and security, while the naval security will take over civil security and police work. Our advanced weapons will be locked in the armory, only to be issued in areas of critical importance, Blake said. Our ammunition stocks are too low for any more large-scale conflicts. All personnel, other than those guarding points of importance, will be issued with mage locks. Aye, aye, sir, Frank and Pike echoed. We will ensure everyone turns in their weapons to the armory. Next, the two pilots came up with the proposal of getting the two haulers to fly. Blake activated a display in his offices, showing a plans for the Boeing 848 Super Space Bus. They also proposed a weapon system, installing black powder rocket pods here and here. Pike nodded. Looks good as a close-in air support platform, since it is not aerodynamic. Using it as a fixed rotor might be more efficient than having it as a duct fan design. But how are they solving the weight issue? Those things weigh hundreds of thousands of tons, as they are for use in space only. Well, they stripped as much of the structure of its non-essential components out as possible, Blake explained, as we had some unexpected help from Magister Thorne. The elf quack, Pike snorted. I get that magic is useful. It can't be all of our solutions. Well, his idea of using runes to fire rifles was quite good. In fact, it's more reliable than using electronic firing circuits, Blake smiled. Pike, you can run the tests for yourself. I know, sir, Pike shrugged. It just doesn't really sit well with me, sir. How do we know if we'll fail later? That's something we have to take a risk for now, Blake said. With winter coming to an end, we'll soon need every tool and weapon at our disposal. From what the prisoner is singing to intel, I bet you a wolf stake that they will be back for round three. 
So how will Thorn's magic help? Frank interjected, going straight to the point. He was very interested in having some VTOLs to close air support or as an aerial transport for his marines. Well, the same thing as before. Use of runes embedded into the hull of the ships. Use some sort of anti-gravity or weight-lessening spells engraved into the hull, Blake said. He's doing research on aeronautics and aerospace engineering now, but he's very certain it's doable. And he did mention something about flying castles and fortresses in ancient times. Flying castles and fortresses? Frank and Pike sat up straight and heard that. There's such a things in this planet. Board shrugged as he added. Thorn said he read it somewhere about old lands having flying islands and castles hundreds of years ago. There were even rumors about the Empire, but not one could verify. Even the prisoner does not know. Great! Giant wolves to dragons to flying islands, Pike snorted. What's next? Gods! Don't curse it, Blake said sharply. It might come true. Sorry, sir, my bad, Pike apologized. But if the quack elf could get the ships up and flying, it would help greatly. I see what the black powder rockets we can cook up and the current stuff we have. Also, we could get their current combat spellcasters to join the marines. I see what I can do with that point on the majors, Blake promised Pike. All right, Chief Gale has informed us that the next fabricator will be up and running in another week or so. But as it is a smaller and a simplified model, the things it could produce out when being able to match the current fabricators, Blake said. The elves also have more or less finished learning the basics of advanced tech courses, so we will move production over to the elves instead of constantly relying on the workshops. We will introduce a concept of mass production and assembly line production to them, Ford added. This will help simplify the ease of production requirements. We are planning to let the owls handle the less, um, techy stuff first, till they get up with their proficiency. Yes, when spring comes, we also have to extend the farms. We only just have enough to survive winter. Blake wrapped his fingers on the table. Also, that sailor is willing to teach whoever is willing to learn on shipbuilding techniques. Plus, what we have in our archives, we could produce a fleet of wet water ships for finishing or to improve our food stocks and also to defense of the Goblin City. Sir, the Marine Armorer had also just submitted another firearm design. Frank sent the file over to Blake, who opened it and put it up on the display. It's a revolver design. The image displayed a 2D wireframe top front and side drawing of an archaic-looking swings-out cylinder revolver. It holds five rounds in the cylinder, chambered for a 6.5mm black powder loads, same ammunition as the mage lock. Frank read out the specifications of the weapon. It also borrows from the concept of the mage lock. Revolver hammer also hits the rune to fire the cartridge. This looks quite good, Blake admired the drawing. Your marine armor is pretty knowledgeable on firearms. Yes, he is, Pike spoke up. Other than that, he's quite useless. No, why? Blake looked away from the display, his eyebrows arching up. That guy's always finding ways to slack and avoid any dangerous duties, Pike explained and shook his head. He got posted to the marines as a rear echelon due to his family's political connections. I guess they're regretting their decisions now. Well, I don't care if they have any political connections back on Earth. Blake leaned back in his chair. We're all in the same sinking ship now. 
Everyone has to help out in one way or another. If not, everyone sinks together. End of chapter. Chapter 71. The Crucible. Can't you maggots crawl faster? James screamed at the mud-drenched recruits crawling under the series of barbed wire obstacles. James fired his mage-knock over the heads and wearied recruits, his live round smacking next to the wet snow, where one of the recruits stopped to take a breather, making the recruit flinch and continue to crawl. The snow had been churned into mud by the bodies and the sleep-deprived recruits as they navigated through the obstacle courses. Somewhere down the line, Mill sadistically splashed buckets of virum blood and guts over the straggling recruits. Get used to the blood and gore! While the other drill instructors fired live ammunition amongst the recruits. Once the obstacle course was completed, the recruits were then forced marched eight kilometers to another location, where they began another series of challenging exercises. The recruits' final week of training is a complete this crucible test. The crucible test is every recruit must go through to become a marine. It tests every recruit physically, mentally, and morally, and is the defining experience of recruit training. The crucible takes place over 72 hours and includes food and sleep deprivation and over 80 kilometers of marching. The recruits get barraged constantly in a day and night with exercises, which require every recruit to work together to solve problems, overcome obstacles, and help each other along the way. The obstacles they faced including long marches, combat assault courses, leadership reaction courses, a team-building exercises. All the while, their instructors were in a warm clothes, drinking hot drinks and offering them food, hot beverages, blankets and a warm shower if they would just quit and ring the bell. Yet, so far, none of the elves covered in snow had given up. They pushed and encouraged each other, showing the humans that they were a very tough race. Newly promoted Master Sergeant Pike sat in a jeep, watching the recruits humping over twenty kilograms of gear, trotting zombie-like over the snow as they finished the final course. The freezing night wind blew strongly against the tired owls, but they ignored the freezing wind and stubbornly pushed on, even in their feet froze with broken blisters. Soon, the sun rose and Camp Alpha appeared in the sights. The tired recruits broke into a marching song to keep their spirits up and to ignore the chill and the weariness creeping into their bones. In the early morning sun, with the fields pack on my back and the aching in my heart and my body full of sweat, I'm a long, long way from home and I miss my girlfriend so. In the early morning march, when the cold wind blows, 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 I know, I know, you have to go, so hurry back home, I miss you so. Pike smiled in the rear of the jeep that was following behind the marching recruits. Soon they will become real marines after they reach the camp and receive their globe and anchor badge, which signified them becoming a marine. Damn, these guys are pretty hardcore. Pike hoped that the next batch of recruits would be the same too. As the march through the gates, they headed to the parade square where dozens of viewing stands were constructed. Surprised, they found out that their families and relatives, whom they listed as their next of kin, appeared in the stands, waving and cheering them on. 
The tiredness that had seeped into their bones instantly vanished, and they marched straighter and prouder. Even with their unkempt appearance, they marched in step, and kept in proper formation, holding their rifles in port arms. As they assembled in the parade square, Major Frank and Master Sergeant Pike stood before them standing on a covered platform, with Princess Shireen as a guest of honor. Captain Blake, Commander Ford, Lord Joseph, and the other high-rankers sat behind on the reviewing stand. Out of the 448 recruits, six were dropped out due to injuries sustained during training. The six will be allowed to rejoin the training after they have fully recovered. Other than those six, not a single former Gold Rose soldier gave up and rang the bell set aside the parade ground. The bell was a simple cast-iron bell, if any recruit who wished to quit can ring the bell three times loudly in the middle of the whole camp, and if they ring the bell during the crucible test, they have to hot food, drinks, and warm, dry clothes in front of the rest of the wet, cold, hungry recruits. They marched and passed the public viewing stands and saluted the officers in the reviewing stands before stopping their march in front of the podium. Now, the 442 recruits formed up proudly, all traces of fatigue gone, and stood at attention, staring straight ahead. Master Sergeant Pike nodded, proud of the recruits standing in front of him. All of you have made me proud. I've never seen a batch of recruits like you who have never gave up. You are now no longer maggots. You are not pieces of crap. You are not idiots and no longer recruits. You are all marines. You have completed what I've done many years ago, when I was a recruit, just like you. Master Sergeant Pike's voice amplified by the mic and the speakers set around the parade square. Major Frank took over and gave his speech to the Marines. Today, you people are no longer maggots. Today, you are Marines. You're part of a brotherhood. And from now on, until the day you die, wherever you are, every Marine is your brother. Most of you will go to Sawtooth Pass. Some of you will not come back. But always remember this. Marines die. That's what we're here for. But the Marine Corps lives forever. And that means you live forever. Hoorah! The men roared loud in unison. The force of their roar gave Princess Shireen goosebumps. Being told that they would die, yet their morale was so high. Princess Shireen thought it was quite scary. How did they train them to become so hardcore, she wondered. Princess Shireen was then invited to give a speech on behalf of the people. The crowd stand and cheered as she stood before the podium. She cleared her throat and the people hushed, allowing her to speak. My people, we've had to come a long way since we left our motherland. Everyone has experienced some kind of loss along the way. Now the humans have reached a helping hand to us, not only in material means, but also in military help. Today we are gathered here to witness the birth of a new army to defend us from our enemies, with the help of our human allies. Let us salute our brave men who are willing to give their lives so that we can sleep peacefully at night. Thank you. Princess Shireen gave a bow to the gathered troops. The public also stood up and bowed respectably to the men standing at attention at the parade square. Congratulations, Marines! Major Frank stood at attention and gave a salute to the graduated Marines, who saluted back. You will now receive your anchor and globe insignia. 
which means you are Marines now. The drill instructors gave out and walked down the rows of valves, issuing the Marine insignia and congratulating each and every one of them. You are no longer recruits. You can call us by our ranks and names from now onwards. Now return your gear and arms. You have two hours with your friends and families gathered here. After that, clean up all your gear and tomorrow will be one week off. Platoon leaders, dismiss your men. Master Sergeant Pai gave the order once every Marine had been issued the Marine insignia. The newly graduated Marines cheered as the individual acting platoon leaders gave the commands for them to dismiss. The Marines then rapidly dispersed back into the barracks to change and drop their gear, before returning to the parade square dressed in new uniforms to find their loved ones and sharing their experiences excitedly and asking them to pin the new insignia on for them. The drill instructors went around the digital cameras to help the families and friends to take pictures together with the graduated Marines. Almost everyone was no longer strangers to the humans. Technology, they had eagerly gathered to take pictures. Princess Shireen watched the scene with her seat with mixed emotions. She found that the practices of the humans were very different from her people's way of living and thinking, which can be counted on cultural differences. But watching the way the new soldiers and their families and friends behaved now, she felt them no longer as part of her people. She wondered if the even one of the people were brainwashed into becoming more human-like in the future. Will the people's identity and culture and history of Gold Roast be lost forever? End of chapter Chapter 72 Escape as the celebrations went on in Camp Alpha way into the morning, back on the ship, several men met up with the Marines' armory. Sergeant Ramon watched the armory's hatch camera, making sure that no one else was around opening the hatch. He always used the backdoor hack to erase the video images and ID tags of people entering and leaving the restricted area, to prevent security from noticing anything wrong. All here, Ramon looked at the group inside the armory, Two crew ratings with the maintenance and operations, two from engineering, two mechanics from auxiliary, and one from security. Ivan nodded. All that want to go are here. Good. Ramon rubbed his sweaty palms together and said, The passcode for the arms lockers are here. He passed out the data states to the crew and the security uniform tabs. Grab all the ammo and rifles and load up the crates. Ivan and your friend, you go start up the vehicles. We will meet you at the motor pool. Ramon instructed handling Ivan the set of black security armor and a Glock 88 attached to a leg holster. The armory didn't keep any spare marine armor as those were all transported to Camp Alpha. The rest help transport the equipment we need over to the motor pool. Ramon continued handing out sets of black turtle vests as his fellow conspirators. They loaded the PDWs and M7A1s with live ammunition and slung the weapons over the backs before placing the loaded crates onto the hand loaders, pushing them out of the armory. The dozens of weapons lockers were emptied out rapidly, dozens of PDWs and a few M7A1s that remained in the armory were stacked in foam crates, while cases of 5mm and 6.5mm were loaded into separate crates. The armory started to look empty as crates and crates of equipment were loaded out and pushed towards the motor pool and the cargo bay. Move those two. They're combat rations which I nicked from the marine stores. 
he pointed to several plastic boxes sitting at the side of the armory. They were soon loaded up and along with the rest of the crates. Ramon did a quick check around the armory, making sure that everything is taken, before he exited the armory and locked the hatch. He took out his tablet and hid a few keys in it, releasing a virus that he wrote into the system. Almost immediately, the armory lost all power, and the lights went out inside. Even telltale red lights of the emptied electronics lockers lockers disappeared. Ramon grinned wickedly. Well, that'll give us some time before they open the lockers, only to find them empty. Too bad they didn't store all the weapons and ammunition in one place. If not, I would have taken it all. Ramon rued. Too much time is needed to raid the rest of the arms lockers in the various parts of the ships, and no way to get the city armory. Raising his Glock 88, he aimed the muzzle at the box-shaped silencer attached to the pistol and squeezed several shots into the security pad of the armory door, destroying the lock sensors, causing the smell of burned plastic in the hatchway. Ramon swung his backpack onto his back and walked away without looking back and put on a pair of shades while holstering his weapon. Come on, yo! Use more strength! Spaceman Machinist Ryan urged his partner as they gripped the handles of the monkey wrench, trying to loosen the devil cursed bolt from the transmission gear that a half-track that they were maintaining. Okay, on three. One, two, three... The two mechanics huffed and puffed as they exerted their strength against the bolt. God damn it! How did it get so fricked up with muck? That we can't unbolt it. Spaceman apprentice machinist Hyo grumbled as he wiggled his sore fingers. Hey, that's Ivan and Tony. Hyo saw the two entering the motor pool pushing some equipment with hand loaders. Petty officer Ivan and Tony boy! Ryan yelled from where he sat on the cold, hard decks of the cargo bay. Need some help here? The two men walked over towards them and the side of the bay froze, turned their heads like robots and stared at Ryan and Hyo. What's wrong? Huh? Oh, nothing. What are you guys doing here so late? It was zero two hundred shipboard hours. Ivan asked as he walked over to the two machinists. Shouldn't you guys be off duty? Damn, I want to, but we got to fix this crap up before we can get off. Ryan grumbled, tapping the hull of the half-track with a spanner. Some help with the unscrewing that bolt, we can't find the empowered screwdriver. Don't know which jerk used it and didn't put it back in its space. Keo had stared at Ivan, looking at the armor and his gear he was wearing. Pio Ivan, did the sirens go off? Are we under attack? He gestured as his head towards the armor Ivan was wearing. Oh, Ivan looked down at his armor, seemingly like he noticed it for the first time. This, he quick drew his silence pistol and fired into the two unsuspecting friends, dropping them both onto the decks with their own puddle of blood. Ivan's heartbeat pounded loudly at his ears, louder than the suppressed shots of his clock. His head drenched with a cold sweat. He swallowed his suddenly dry throat to three times, before holstering his pistol with his shaky hands. Sorry, guys. What happened? Did you kill them? Spaceman Senior Tony came up behind Ivan, causing Ivan to jump in surprise. Crap! Blood! Ivan cursed. Don't come up behind me like that. He patted his chest a few times, trying to calm his racing heart down. They saw us. We couldn't let them report anything. Enough. Come, let's go. Crap! Tony spat as he cast a glass glance at the two bodies on the deck. 
He worked with those two before a few times and found them to be great guys. Crap, take that half-track. I had it listed down as maintenance. There should be some equipment loaded on the back. Ivan tossed the electronic key to Tony. Check the back to see if it's all there. Tony unlocked the vehicle and pulled himself up on the tailgate of the half-track, doing a quick inventory of the equipment piled in the back. Dozens of foam crates stacked with the rear neatly in rows, he opened the nearest crate and saw dozens of pieces of machinery seated in the foam padding. There should be twenty crates at the back, Ivan said as he pushed his hand, a loader, and more crates to the back of the half-track. Got it. Tony did a quick count and reached for the crates that Ivan handed up. Soon other members of the conspiracy arrived with more crates and started helping to load the supplies up. No one said anything about the two cooling bodies on the other side of the bay. Raman walked into the cargo bay and head towards the motor pool. He noticed the two bodies on the floor next to the half-track and smiled inwardly. Now they are too deep in already. They can't run back to the captain and betray him. How's everything? Raman asked. All good? Yeah, except for a little problem, but it's taken care of, Ivan said. We just need to hook up the trailer and we're good to go. Great, Raman turned and pointed to the security guy. Aaron, right? Go open the bay doors and lower the ramps. Aaron nodded and ran towards the control booth at the side of the bay doors. After a while, a loud sounds of hydraulics echoed in the vast cargo bay as the massive doors slid open inch by inch. Split up half and a half between the vehicles, Raman ordered, let's get the hell out of this place. They picked up Aaron at the doors and drove down the extended ramps heading towards the west walls. Tony stood by the intercom and reported the bridge about opening the bay door, using the wind blowing into a muffle his voice, reporting that Hio and Ryan were doing a vehicle test and since they were logged in and working in the motor pool, Bridge did not suspect anything. The vehicle's headlights cut a swath through the fluttering snow, drift drifting down from the dark skies as they navigated along the wet, slippery snow road, before finally reaching the west gate of the walls. The security personnel manning the gates were surprised, but Ivan bluffed his way through, saying that the wind, tidal, and solar generators were down due to heavy snow, and they needed to shut it down before it gets damaged in the storm. They were waved through, and they really drove towards one of the WTS generators. The conspirators quickly detached the power cabling and collected the cables, while the two engineers shut down the generator and prepared it for transport. It took them less than an hour to load the portable generator into the trailer. As they drove off in the snowstorm, the sirens within the walls blared, waking the inhabitants up. End of chapter. Chapter 73. The Hunt Spaceman Apprentice Dale from Maintenance and Operations scanned his ID chip from the sensor, updating his timesheet. As he entered the maintenance locker room in Cargo Bay to start work, humming to himself, he changed into his work overalls and started up all the E1 robotic cleaners. After making sure the cleaning solutions and water tanks were all topped up, Dale, using a control tablet and four robotic cleaners the size of a large trash bin, followed docilely behind him, running on their many roller wheels as he led the machines out to the garage of the maintenance locker. Wearing a pair of head mufflers and running music in the background, he directed the cleaners to clean the maintenance decks of the cargo bay. 
A short while later, he was enjoying some hot decaf, an alert on his tablet went off and he went to investigate the problem. These parts tend to get stuck easily, or if they detected some tools left behind by mechanics, they would prompt an alert out. What's wrong, R2-D4? He named the four robots, one to four, after some classic science fiction character from the 2D oldie motion picture archives. What's in your gears? He looked up around the half-track and stopped at his tracks. There were two bodies lying on the deck in their own pool of congealed blood. Holy crap. He pulled his personal comm device and spoke directly into it. Control, cargo maintenance, we got dead people here. Captain Blake was angry, very angry. He gripped the handrails and the bridge and his knuckles turned white. He was listening to the reports from the flight operations. Sir, we can't launch the UAVs in the storm. The current sustained wind speed is 73 kilometers per hour and with sudden gusts up to 223 kilometers per hour. Not to mention that the trick snowfall and sensors would be totally blind. So, are you saying that we have to let those traitorous bastards off? Captain Blake slammed the tactical table plot with his fists. How about tracking devices on the vehicle? The sensor operator shook his head. No luck, sir. It will appear that they had disabled the tracker. What? Even the secondary backup? Even the search and rescue beacon? Blake pressed and flustered operator. Sir, we got no signal to the SAR beacon at all. She replied and checked the console for the eighth time. What do we got then? Blake turned to officer wearing security insignia, standing at the side of the tactical plot. You better have something for me. Yes, sir. Second Lieutenant Mike Jacobs gave his report. Central cameras along deck 3A, 4B, 4C, 6C and 7A had motion detected during the time period between 0100 hours and 0200 hours. We eliminated movement from other locations as those have their alibis and access checked. In the past hour, we also had a full roll call of our personnel to find out who has not replied. Lieutenant Mike uploaded a report to Brake's display, showing a few individual dossiers. These are our current suspects. They have not reported in the past one hour. Spaceman Apprentice Luang Chung-Kok, born 2109, New Territories, Hong Kong, Maintenance and Operations. Spaceman Apprentice Ramu Garcia, born 2111, Manila, Philippines, Maintenance and Operation. Spaceman Siddharth Kumar, born 2111, Mumbai, India, Engineering. Spaceman Senior Nicholas de Vos, born 2105, Ghent, Belgium, Engineering. Spaceman Senior Aaron Hart, born 2109, San Diego, California, North America. Spaceman Senior Tony Petronik, born 2112, Dnipiro, Ukraine, Auxiliaries, Cargo Operations. Betty Officer Third Class Ivan Pavlo, born 2110, Kursk, Russia, Auxiliaries, Flight Operations. Third Sergeant Ramon Singh, born 2108, New Delhi, India. United Nations of Man Marine Corps. Apparently, our good sergeant here is to hacked into the armory security system, which he was in charge of, changing the erasing logs, Lieutenant Mike said, as he was very familiar with the armory systems. He fried both the main power and the backup power systems for the armory, which, when we opened, found it totally empty. What do we lose? Captain Blake asked as he leaned over the tactical plot. Has the virus been scrubbed from the systems? 
We managed to isolate the virus within the armory security systems. It is no threat to the main systems, but to be safe, I would advise we shut down every system and run a codes to make sure that there are no hidden viruses and backdoors that he might have left behind. Lieutenant Mike replied as he scrolled through his tablet while the listings and missing items. Information is still coming in on what they had taken by the deserters, but based on the updated armory report from Master Sergeant Pike's inspection, which is two weeks outdated, we estimate that we lost 8 M7A1s, 30 PDWs, 10 M3 shotguns, 30 Glock 88s, and a dozen M1 mage locks. For ammunition stocks, 7,000 rounds of 6.5mm in both ammunition types, 20,000 rounds of 5mm, 1,000 rounds of 12-gauge 00 buckshot, and over 3,000 black powder loads, 20 sets of Mark 6 body armor, and also 100 high-explosive anti-personnel grenades and flashbangs were missing. Captain Blake closed his eyes as he crunched the numbers in his head. That's almost the remaining one-third of our remaining high-tech ammunition stocks. On the plus side, sir, Lieutenant Mike continued, we had dispersed most of the weapons and ammunition to several locations all over the base in the past week. If not, our losses would be worse. What else is confirmed missing? Blake asked, trying to keep his temper in. We have no concrete evidence yet, but we are suspecting that they might have stolen a full set of Class 5 fabricator. We found reports of parts listing the defects and recycled in the system. The forensics team is putting together the list of parts to be self, but it looks like it's a Class 5. Class 5 fabricator is a man-portable advanced materials 3D printer, capable of printing anything handheld from a mobile comms unit to assault rifles as long as raw materials are available. The workshops were printing out Class 5 fabricators to increase production of smaller parts to free up the larger Class 3 fabricators on the larger important projects. Also, forensics found that several database topics in the system were copied, mostly on manuals and basic infrastructure, agricultural, animal husbandry, medicine and sciences like chemistry and physics, Mike added. Captain, the UAV operator called out, the storm has dropped, we can resume flight operations. Do it. Launch all UAVs on standby, do a 100-kilometer grid search pattern, Blake ordered. Target the northern and southern parts of the western gate. The flight deck was a flurry of activity, as the two standby UAVs were loaded onto the electromagnetic launch catapults. The whine of the supercharged turbofans of UAVs drowned out all the conversation on the flight deck. As the launch crew ensured that all systems were operational, the catapult officer did the last-minute check and the launch pad and signaled the air boss waiting inside the primary flight control room. As the moors of the armoured flight base swung open, the wind from the flightless and storm blew in, rattling the two UAVs locked in the side-by-side on the dual launcher bay. The catapult officer checked the wind speeds and gave a worried look at the air boss, signaling with the hand signs that the wind speed might be too strong for the UAVs to handle during takeoff. Air Boss Chief Petty Officer Ethan Turner, who was in charge of all flight operations on the flight deck, frowned as he double-checked the instruments. The current wind was very unstable, even though it had dropped to 45 kilometers per hour. Well, within the safety takeoff speed of the Allied UAVs, it was the gushes of wind that worried him as it could suddenly jump from up to 200 kilometers per hour, which might catch the UAVs in a crosswind and that would crash the precious UAVs.
Damn, those treacherous, murdering bastards were getting away in the bloody storm, he thought to himself. Freck it, let's take the risk. All right, all hands clear the bay, freck the wind. The captain ordered it, and we're going to find those traitors. The roars of approval were drowned by the high-pitched whine of the electromagnetic pulse launchers. As it powered up, the poles fired the carriage holding the UAVs out at speeds of over 250 kilometers per hour into an angled ramp onto the stormy skies. The ally staggered as it hit the storm but managed to right itself. The UAV operator wearing the full immersion headset controller skillfully piloted the UAV into the air and directed the nose of the UAV towards the search grid. The two half-tracks packed side by side in the cover of the very blue forest, taking shelter from the raging snowstorm. Quickly, get those smart camouflages over the vehicles, Ramon shouted over them. The conspirators struggled against the wind and finally managed to pin and lock the camo covers over the vehicles. Good work, let's continue moving. Even with the dozer blades deployed to clear the snow in their tracks, the snowstorm quickly covered their tracks. Ramon tried to peer out the window and into the sky. He might not be a true marine, but he had learned enough on how to avoid aerial surveillance and recon. The smart camouflage plus the snowstorm will effectively negate any emissions of infrared, thermal, and then electromagnetic signals, making them invisible to sensors. He smiled happily and yelled loudly in direct laser comms linking the vehicles. Let's go and build our own kingdom. End of chapter. Chapter 74. When crap falls, it comes in buckets. The hunt for the deserters went on throughout the next day. But even with the snowstorm weakening, yet no traces of the two stolen half-tracks could be found. Unfortunately, before the storm ebbed, only one of the ally UAVs encountered a sudden gale of wind, forcing it to go into a flat spin and pancake into the snow-packed terrain. Captain Blake had no choice but to call back the rest of the UAV, searching for the deserters to prevent more accidents till the storm passes. The recalled UAVs landed one after another and were towed to maintenance hangars for servicing by the crew. A retrieval team was dispatched to find the crashed UAV. Hopefully, the airframe was still sound enough to be crashed UAV could be repaired back into service. Air Boss Ethan directed the crashed UAV into a hangar bay and strolled over to Chief Gale. How is it? Can it be repaired? Both of them stared at the warped wreckage of the UAV. Lucky the ground isn't packed shoulder high with snow, it should be cushioned some of the impact. Chief Gale crouched down to peer at the underside of the airframe, tapping the plating with his knuckles. Well, we'll need to do a full detailed microscopic scan to see if there are any hairline cracks in the frame. Can't tell anything for now. If not, we should be able to get it up and running in a month or two. Damn, now we're down to only three UAVs in an active service. Ethan rubbed his tired face, having not slept since the alert went off. Chief, do your best to fix her up, all right? Sure, I'll get my boys on it. Chief Gale shook his head and cursed under his breath. Freaking traitors, if I get my hands on them, he cracked his knuckles in anger. I'm freaking gonna tear their heads off. Sorry for the loss to your two men, Chief, Ethan patted Chief Gale's shoulder. We will get them. Chief Gale nodded. They were just kids, damn it. He hammered his glove fist into the wreckage. 
Ethan stepped out of the hangar bay and bellowed at his men. All right, prep the return birds for launch. Once the storm passes, we're going to launch again. Make sure the birds are fully refueled and ready to go. Commander Ford frowned as he heard the latest report came in twice, making sure that he didn't read it wrong. Finally, he gave a deep sigh, setting the tablet down on the table. Well, I got more bad news, Cap. Captain Blake sprawled over his office sofa, one hand resting on his tired eyes. One more crap did they do? He gestured to the other hand to Ford for him to continue. We lost contact with the WTS generator earlier, but engineers listed it down as due to a heavy storm. An engineering team went down to check on it when the storm lessened, in case it got disconnected or damaged due to the storm. But when they reached the site of the WTS Generator 4, they reported that it was missing. Ford replied, slumping down in a weary chair. It's highly likely that they stole it too. So not only guns and ammo, a Class 5 fabricator, and now even a power generator is stolen. Blake spoke from his position on the sofa, and we got a downed UAV for our efforts with still no results of where they ran. Oh, not to mention our stock of gold and silver reserves. Apparently, one of the security officers manning the vault this morning as part of the gang, Ford confirmed. At least, he tasered his fellow officers rather than killing him in cold blood. Is something that we can be thankful for. We still lost two kids because of their actions, Blake cut Ford off, who conceded the point. They also stole enough of the emergency rations to last eight of them a couple months. Ford sounded defeated. It's very clear that this was planned long before, and the hacking of the security systems is not something you can do in a day or a week or two. Security forensics also found the files regarding all weapon designs and blueprints wiped from our system servers, except for what we have saved on the tablets. Ford continued the bad news. Even the design software, we are back to drawing board, or we'll need an IT guys to write a new set of design software. How did we miss all the files? Blake asked. There should be some signs, right? How did they evade the intruder failsafes in the system? Most of the ship's primary AI server functionality was badly damaged during the crash, and the IT guys took it down the system to rewrite the lost code and functions, Ford explained. Apparently, our Indian friend here is not only holds a bachelor degree in mechanical engineering and firearm design, but also a bachelor's of science in computer engineering. The profile picture of the dossier of Ramon Singh appeared on the display screen in the office. Details of his education and background appeared below his photo image. He must have slipped in the malicious codes when the IT department rebooted the mainframe. Ford gave his hypothesis. Forensics is still digging through everything with a fine comb that he touched or been on board the ship. But so far, nothing so he's our super hacker, a firearm designer, and a son of India's trade minister. Blake checked off the points on his fingers. Freaking fantastic. IT will be shutting down the mainframe for debugging and a full diagnostics of the code to find if there are any hidden back doors, Ford said. Weapon systems are already isolated from the mainframe to prevent any remote controlling if he had planted a back door. Before the codes are checked and cleared, all of the ship's weapon systems will be down. Frickit! It's over twenty hours, Blake said, sitting on the sofa. Call in off the search, let the men get some rest. We can't do anything now until the storm passes, and without the main weapon systems, we're practically defenseless. Understood, Ford responded and started to pack his stuff. 
I get the men to stand down for now and focus in defense. Go get some rest, Blake advised Ford. My gut feeling is that they are long gone, but I suspect it won't be the last we see of them. Ford stood and opened a hatch and nodded. That we need to prepare a warm welcome for them when we see them again. You bet we will, Blake agreed. We will be ready for them. Camp Alpha, briefing room one. The air was heavy as the human marines not on duty gathered around the front rows of the theater like seating listening to the comms of the marine search parties. When the elder came, telling the men to stand down, they all broke out in curses of disagreement. All right, stand down. Master Sergeant Pike's voice drowned out all the argument from the disgruntled marines. Go back to your bunks and rest. Top, we can still move out and find those bastards, the men argued. We ain't tired. I know everyone is angry with the crap that's going on. It is a serious stain on our Marine Corps' honor. Pike stood in front of the dressed in Marines gathered. I know everyone wants a piece of that treacherous bastard. So do I. So let us go find that jerk, someone yelled back. We got good trackers here. But the orders came to stand down for now, grab some chow and sleep. It isn't over yet, Pike told his men. Save your energy till the storm passes. No one can track any crap in the storm. I am also expecting every one of you to be alert, ready to move out at any moment. Do you understand? Yes, Top. The men addressed Pike unofficially as Top, due to his seniority and position as the top of the company's enlisted ranks. The men filed out of the briefing room in ones and twos, shaking their heads and grumbling along the way. Mills grumbled as Bartley headed back towards the barracks. Damn, that black crap always knew that he was up to no good. Bartley shook his head and replied as he strolled beside Mills. Bad business. The blast of cold wind hammered against them so someone opened up the main door out of the admin building. They left the building and leaned against the snowstorm before entering the barracks. Oh, Mills shook off the snow of his environmental suit and stamped the boots to clear the snow. Crazy weather. Those bastards freeze to death in it. Saves everyone the energy of killing them. The newbie marine on desk duty in the barracks visibly restrained himself from jumping to his feet and greeting the arrivals. Mills chuckled and asked, Does the winter storms get this bad? The marine half nodded. Normally not as bad as this, but the mountains protect us from the winds. But it does storm quite a bit during this time of year. But the heavy snowstorms only last a day or two. And once it passes, the next season comes. Well, it sounds like Mother Nature is doing a final dump on us before moving on. End of chapter. Chapter 75. Distractions. The snowstorm continued to rage till the next morning. When the dark clouds cleared, sunlight shone down from the clear blue skies, brightening the city covered in a thick layer of snow. The inhabitants exited their dwellings and cleared the snow away while chatting with the neighbors. Most of the topic evolved the sirens that went off in the Iron Castle. The humans lived in the Iron Castle were very strange in their ways, yet wise despite the youthful looks. But to them, as long as they had a roof over their heads, food in their bellies, they would follow the humans in their strange ways. Main Conference Room, UNS Singapore The whole high command was gathered in the room except for the elves. Everyone's faces were dark and grim and the air of the room was heavy. 
Captain Blake sat in his usual place at the head of the door with a commander Ford at his side. Ladies and gentlemen, the past few days have had an incident that has affected us badly in both material resources and morale, Blake stated as he meeting with his statements. Mutters of agreement came from everyone as they looked gloomily at Blake. I am not here to assign any blame for what happened, Blake continued. This is something none of us predicted nor expected, but we shall learn from our mistakes. Captain, Chief Engineer Matt spoke up. Do we have any idea where they or why they deserted? For now, we suspect the reason is either greed or a threat of the Empire. Commander Ford spoke. But we are leaning more towards the Empire's threat. As for where they went, there are only two directions that they could have gone, either north or east. Head of Security, 2nd Lieutenant Mike Aver's report. Forensics ran through all eight of the deserters' daily activities and data logs. While most of them were wiped out of the server, we managed to reconstruct some of the files. He passed a stack of dossiers and transcripts around the table. It appears that Sergeant Ramon was the brains behind everything, from the viruses to the planning of desertion. Some of the armory inventory had been modified as early as two weeks after we crashed. The summary is all listed in the files. Lieutenant Mike gave a whole rundown of what had been stolen from the advanced weaponry, ammunition, food, manuals, gold and silver from the vaults and the Class 5 fabricator and an automated marine surplus reloading kit to the WTS generator and two half-tracks with spare batteries. In total, a third of our remaining stocks of advanced weapons and ammunitions were looted and almost all of our weapons databases and researchers were wiped from the servers. He ended with that point. As to why we couldn't discover them so far, we suspect that they were using marine smart camo covers that can reduce the heat and electronic signatures, and with the snowstorm covering their tracks, Ford continued after Mike ended his brief. Once they hit the cover of the forest, we can't track them in the air at all. So what now? Chief Matt asked. They stole one of the WTS generators, and with the storm, seven out of the eleven windmills are down for repairs. Our people needs are barely met. Not to mention the IT boys have to check all the codes for viruses. All our armaments are down. We replace what lost and focus on defense first, Blake spoke. Continue training troops and buff up our defenses at the pass. While the IT guys focus on checking no backdoors are installed and we restart our weapons research again. So, we're going to let the bastards off? Pardon the language, Doc. Chief Gale apologized to Dr. and Sharon and waved him off. We're going to let those murderers walk. For now, yes, Blake sighed. He turned the activated the display behind him, showing the UAV feed. This was taken this morning at 0944 hours, 237 kilometers northeast of the paths when the storm was over. The video was split into two images. The right image showed a normal view of the terrain, while the left one displayed an infrared image of the same terrain. The field of white could be seen covering a thick ever-blue forest canopy, while the infra-imaging showed spots of red appearing amongst the breaks in the forest canopy. The spots of red appeared in several areas where the canopy of the trees was not clustered together, stretching for kilometers of distance. The Empire has made them move. Blake gave his report with a surprised crowd when meeting the room. With the current terrain and weather conditions, it is estimated that they will arrive within striking range of the pass within one week to ten days. God damn, someone cursed. They just don't give up, do they? 
thing here is, it'll be that they either hired mercenaries or they press gang some other races to wage war. Blake switched the UAV feed to another image, displaying a frozen zoomed-in image of which caught a perfect shot of several creatures through the break of the trees. That appears to be the creatures we classed as a troll. Major Frank took over the briefing, and here is another shot of another new creature. It displayed a new image over several large bare-chested muscular humanoid creatures taken at an angle, their skin a mix of dull grey and green tones, wearing skull caps with animal skins, full shorts and wielding wicked-looking axes and huge sabers. That looks like an orc, Dr. Sharon exclaimed excitedly, her eyes shining as she smacked the table with the top palms. Whoops, sorry. She noticed everyone staring at her with weird looks her face turning slightly red. <clears throat> Frank cleared his throat before continuing. Yes, thanks to Dr. Sharon reference materials, we are classing these new creatures as an orc. According to the elves, the Empire uses irregular troops constantly. The orcs to them are like a larger cousin to the goblins, but tougher and stronger. They call them orkin, which translates to larger greenskins. Frank gave a basic description of the orcs. First-hand information from Gold Rose soldiers who had fought against them is that they are very hard to kill. Standing over two meters tall with muscles that any bodybuilder would kill for, they appeared to have a mix of both goblin and troll traits. The cunningness of the goblins is similar regeneration powers of the trolls and a skin tough enough to stop swords and spears. Frank then quoted the elves, to kill an orkin, one must chop off its head. There has been many records of supposedly dead orkin with wounds that would have taken lives, waking up after the battle has ended. Oh, could your marines capture one alive? Dr. Sharon's eyes continue to gleam with excitement. I want to study them. Doc, please calm down, Blake interjected. Now we estimate that at least four to five thousand orcs and forces her Lord Joseph told us about them. They are mostly mercenaries, operating in clans which only have so many males available for hire. Intelligence estimates a force of roughly 10,000 heading our way, mixed with orcs, trolls and regular Alban infantry, siege weapons, and that is not counting the baggage and supply train, and what other auxiliary and irregular troops that they scoured up along the way. Ford listed out the enemy's disposition. Our nemesis is known as Lord Strum Cyrus, Baron of Falofor. Apparently, he is the head honcho of this region, also the one governing the conquered territories of Gold Rose. Intel from our prisoner is that this guy is ruthless, ambitious, and somewhat decent general and spellcaster. He is also part of the Knights of Twelve, which seems to be some kind of secretive knightly order, which Intel is still trying to dig more information out of the prisoner, Ford stated. The marine orders are to dig in for a fight. Engineering is to repair the windmills and restore power. The project to dam up the waterfall will proceed once the snow melts, Blake stated, issuing orders to everyone. Dr. Sharon, please continue your research and strategic magical use with Magister Thorn. Deck Chief Gale, please work with flight operations to try and repair the downed UAV, and also plans for modifying the two space buses. Blake listed these priorities one by one. Security and IT support to continue to ensure no backdoors and viruses are in the system and get my guns working ASAP. Everyone clear on their roles? Everyone nodded. As for the traitors, leave them be for now. They can't survive out there for long without proper support base. All right, 
Dismissed. The commanders and head of departments saluted Blake and exited the room one by one. Matt, stay for a while, Blake called out. After the room cleared, only Blake and Matt remained. Could the damaged laser turrets be dug out and salvaged? Yes, it's doable, but there are other more pressing projects to work on. Matt considered the questions before answering. Why? Well, I was thinking of converting them into giant electromagnetic slingshots. End of chapter. Chapter 76, Eye of the Storm Shireen stood before the open windows of her office, allowing the cold wind to blow in. The temperature has risen over the past few days as winter slowly came to an end. She returned to her seat before her desk and looked at the neat stack of perfectly cut and pure white parchment. No, paper, she corrected herself. Printed on the smooth paper were neatly arranged characters in both common and English. It was a census on the number of people living currently in the city, with the ID numbers listed as well, allowing her to search for more detailed information if she keyed the ID number into the computer on her desk. Captain Blake had placed her in charge of running the city hall, and all civic matters. She has a few human advisors on her own people that occupied the offices in the same building, which help her manage the civic affairs of the city. Now that spring is almost here, she has to manage the workers to till the land for farming and animal rearing, roads to be built and maintained, schools to be built, land to be surveyed, and mines to be built. The incident a few days ago, which alarmed all the humans, was strangely brushed off when she asked Blake and Ford. Both of them told her not to worry and just focus on running the city instead. She didn't press the issue, knowing Blake will tell her when the time comes. And yesterday, Blake told her to use the color credit chips as currency for the city instead of using gold, silver, and copper coinage. Blake told her that the citizens can use gold, silver, and copper in exchange for credit chips with equivalent value. He wants her to implement all the community supply stores to only accept credit chips instead of hard coinage by the end of spring. Shireen understood that since they did not have any source of gold or silver mines, creating their own type of currency and enforced by the city hall to be accepted only in shops will help cement the value to the people. Also, the chips themselves were very durable and lightweight compared to the heavy coins. Blake told her to start up a national bank which will guarantee the value of the credit chips with hard gold. He hopes that people will deposit in exchange for precious metals for the chips in the bank rather than hold on to them in their homes. Shireen placed a piece of blank paper and smoothed it carefully on the table and picked up a pen which the humans had called a ballpoint pen. The first time she used it, she fell in love with it. The ease of writing with a ballpoint pen was addicting, compared to the cumbersome quill feathers and ink that she was used to before. Blake told her that these pens are cheap and easy to produce, making her shocked, as a set of quill feathers and a bottle of ink cost up to ten gold pieces. This was almost half a year's salary for a regular craftsman and not to mention the wondrous lamps that provided light brighter than candles at any time, and it doesn't produce a bad smell. Even after attending classes given by the humans, she still thought the lamps as magical. She spent the whole morning working out in the details on the desk to be done during the spring season. Finally, her tummy growled, and she looked at the human clock dimension hanging on the wall, finding it time for midday meal. 
She left the city hall and wandered to a nearby eatery, opened by a former inn-owner. Welcome! Oh, it's the princess! She was greeted cheerfully by the owner's daughter, come waitress, as she slid the wooden doors open. Here, have a seat. She was offered her usual seat next to the windows of clear glass. The usual? Shireen smiled and nodded. Yes, please. An extra egg, too, and a plate of fries. She gave her order to the waitress. The tiny stall started to get crowded and lunch crowd started to come in. The people who came into the store for lunch wasn't surprised to see the princess sitting there, as she regularly had lunch there. They greeted her with a smile and gossiped with her on trivial matters, making her laugh. Her food came, a bowl of verum broth slime ramen with slices of pan-fried verum meat, topped off with a large gooey verum egg and a garnished with green onion herbs and fragrant spicy oil. This recipe was introduced by the humans, much to the delight of the elves' taste buds. They normally just harvested the slime's cause for the magical properties and never thought that it could be a delicacy. With the introduction of slime as a food ingredient, a booming industry of rearing slimes for food had started up. Following that came a plate of golden fried thick-cut fries sprinkled with sea salt, also courtesy of the humans. Potatoes grown from the farm was a new staple food introduced by the humans to the elves. The carbohydrate-rich and filling superstarch was extremely popular, either deep-fried or baked and served with butter, sour cream and bacon bits. The waitress who placed a large serving of steaming hot fries also included a small dish of red tomato sauce on the side, making Shireen's mouth water. A condiment from the humans, cacked, chup, was made from a mashup of red fruit and cooked with salt, sugar, vinegar, and other herbs together. It tasted tangy, sweet, and sour, making it the ideal for dipping fries. Lately, she had felt that she had gained weight ever since she started working at the city hall. The humans are scary. Not only are their weapons deadly, even their food is deadly too, thought Shireen as she dug into a bowl of slurpy ramen with relish. The eatery was soon full to the sounds of laughter and cutlery as people enjoyed the midday meal, blissfully unaware of the coming of darker storm. Sawtooth Pass The marine garrison had been reinforced with mostly new recruits, as a few more promising recruits were sent to basic leadership courses before heading to the advanced leadership courses. Teams of marines in fatigue dragged sharpened logs and bound them together in barricades, with the sharp pointy ends facing away from the gates. The crater from the missile strike was filled in to prevent the enemy from using the crater as cover. The roads were cleared from any form of cover that could be used, while the barricades were hammered into the hard, rocky terrain, forming a maze-like passage. The engineering had come by earlier and deposited two modified laser point defense turrets stripped from their ship. The fully armored enclosure turrets were upgraded and enlarged, enabling the crew of up to four to comfortably operate the weapon system manually. A simple track was installed between the recycled laser projector coils, with the roller cage attached to it with the laser emitters and focusing lenses were removed. By powering the coils in sequence using electricity, the magnetic coils would be able to propel the carriage at high speeds, similar to the Flight Bay EM launchers. A cylinder of cardboard filled with hundreds of lead pellets had been loaded into the carriage, like a giant shotgun shell, and when propelled at high speeds, the dense pellets would burst out with lighter cardboard container like a grape shot. 
Another specialty ammunition available was the discarded sabot rounds, using the steel penetrator instead of the denser materials. It was designed to be used against heavy armored creatures like dragons. The ready ammunition lockers in the turrets were capable of holding 42 grapeshot shells and 12 anti-dragon sabot rounds. The assistant targeting, a crude rangefinder and camera were installed, projecting a two-inch thick armor glass connected to a display on the fire control system inside the turret. Air pumps connected to the pipes were also installed to the turret to ventilate the air inside. To further protect the turrets from offensive magic, a layer of silica ceramics was coated over the outer armor of the turret, which can be heated up to 12 or 4 degrees Celsius and lightning rods installed to protect against lightning attacks. Simple hydraulics replaced the electro-servo motors that rotated the turret, azimuth and elevation of the gun. Power cables were planted into the floors and protected by layers of concrete to prevent disruption of power to the guns. With two of the rail guns covering the approach of the pass, they effectively could throw spreads of grape shot at the enemy that approaches within 400 meters and fire an anti-dragon sabot shot effectively up to four kilometers away. Mills leaned against his shovel, slacking off from filling sandbags and watched the engineers hoist the converted rail guns into place on the secondary wall using a crane built on top. Damn, I want to fire that. He exclaimed to Bertley, who was working diligently, shoveling sand into the bags. Maybe, Bartley gave a simple reply and focused on his task. Can't wait to see those blue boy faces when they blast him with a massive shotgun to the faces. Mills grinned. Revenge is best served with a shotgun blast to the face. Heard that they have over 10,000 Orkins and troops headed this way. One of the new marines said as they worked alongside them. You mean the Orcs? Ten thousand. How many do we have? Mills asked. Three hundred, came the reply from Bartley. Oh no, you don't, Mills cursed. This is sounding a lot like that movie we watched the other night, and that one the other day. Which Moby? The elf stopped working, wiping his sweat from his brows. They were introduced to the wonders of movies and dramas in the recreation room, turning them into die-hard movie junkies. This is too much like 300 meets Helms Deep. End of chapter. Chapter 77. War Drums. Oka the Fear spat in a piece of the tough gristle from his mouth as he clambered over the massive tree root. He paused at the top of the root and stared over the heads of his clanmates marching behind him. He adjusted the leather straps holding his double moon-bladed axe on his back. His clan, known as the Hand, had joined the Softskins for a promise of food, weapons, and a share of the plunder. They mostly roam around the outer edges of the mountains like nomads, living off the land, and raided the Softskins for food, weapons, and slaves. As they lacked the knowledge of metal forging, they relied upon the Softskins for iron weapons and at times food to tide them over the winter months. The clans periodically wage war amongst themselves over the best of watering hole or the prime pastures for their wandering herds to buffaloes. Clan rankings were also determined by walls and jewels. Basically, it's all about the survival of the fittest. Most of the clan worn a simplified boiled buffalo hide, all those with higher ranks within the clan worn crude-looking metal plating, hammered into some resemblance of a chestplate with the white handprint painted on the chests. 
They disdained the weak and small soft skins who were wrapped in thick furs and leather armor. Yet they had to control their unhappiness with working with the soft skins, for they pay well in weapons, armor, food, and slaves. The Orkin, a warrior, should fear nothing, but not even the cold. He felt his clan shouldn't bow down to the soft skins and just take what they need from them. But the great chief had spoken, and he could not disobey. He leapt down from his bared feet, wrapped around the leather squished in wet snow. They continued the march over the four thousand of his kin, heading towards the distant, jagged peaks of the mountain range, sensing an aura of bloodlust coming from the mountains. Excited by the thoughts of war and plunder, he drew a deep breath. His war cry echoed through the forest, inciting his clan to roar with him, and the war drummers unlimbered their drums and started beating a tempo furiously. Duke Stern rode on a palaquin mountain on the back of a land dragon. A small charcoal brazier burnt, keeping the temperature warm and cozy inside. Sturm lounged on several pillows while the palaquin swayed gently on the back of a lumbering creature. Chewing on a golden fruit, Sturm gave a sigh of enjoyment as two half-naked females knitted his muscles. He dropped the half-eaten fruit back on the bowl and half-closed his eyes in bliss. "'My lord!' A cry woke him up from his pleasant dreams. A report has arrived from the scouts. He sat up from the pillows and shoved away the slaves. His pleasure ruined. What is it? My lord, the scouts saved the pass in sight, and it appears that rebel fortified the pass. The soldier riding on the dragon reported, pacing the larger lumbering land dragon side by side. They report seeing a double defensive wall built in the pass. What? Strum pulled away from the thick, heavy curtains of the palanquin and glared at the soldier. Are the scouts accurate? Yes, my lord. The soldiers handed a rolled-up a scroll of footmen riding along the land dragon, who presented the scroll to Strum. Sturm grabbed the scroll and unfurled it, glaring at its contents, which showed a sketch of the pass and the fortifications protecting it. Impossible! Must be an illusion spell. Sturm dumped the scroll to the side. How could they build this much walls during winter? The reported soldier kept his head down, not daring to dispute his lords. In just in the ruse, even if they successfully constructed walls during winter, now the snow is melting, the ground it stands on won't be sturdy enough to withstand our artillery. Strum gestured for the rear of the marching column, where several land dragons pulled themselves a massive construct behind them amongst the columns of the blue-coated soldiers, slogging through the mud, caused by the humans and the hundreds of feet and melting snow. Several more land dragons cleared the way of his army, uprooting the ever-blues and creating a highway for his war machines to move with the difficult terrain. He heard the rising tempo of the drums and stared in the front of the marching army column, and smiled. Well, at least the dogs are hungry. Form the army into two columns. Let the dogs take the center stage. Sturm gave out his orders to his men. The flag-bearer started waving the flags in a particular manner, while the horn was blown and called the commander's attention to the signal flags. Ally UAV, stationed at the pass, glided into gentle circles in the wind, its adaptive coating turning it semi-invisible to the naked eye as it trailed to the advancing army through the thick forest. The communications array constantly sent bites of information back to the base, updating the combat information center in real time. 
The uprooting of the trees allowed the UAV pilot constantly track their movements within the thick blue canopy of the forest as they marched in a direct path towards the pass, and the humans and Albish defenders readied themselves as the enemy neared. Saw, tooth, pass, alpha wall. Marine Private Talon stood inside the protective casement eyeing the forest through the firing slits. He carefully dripped some gun oil onto his bolt carrier and gave it a good wipe, before installing it back into the rifle. He worked the bolt, making sure that the action was smooth, and squeezed the trigger, dry-firing the mage lock, making sure that the fire ruins were working. He pulled the bolt back and slowly slid the two five-round stripper clips in, and after another, into the open chamber. After that, he closed the bolt and put the weapon on safe. Sarge, he calls James, who is sitting on his back against the wall, eyes closed. Think we can win? Of course, Third Sergeant James replied. We fought back large numbers with less than half the defenders we got now. Not to mention, you guys have mage knocks now, James added. I see them, someone yelled excitedly, and everyone turned their attention to look at the distant forest edge. Seeing in the distance, trees were being toppled, creeping closer and closer. Don't worry, they still have to climb up the slope of the mountain, James assured his men. He was now in charge of a new section of elves. His previous men were all mostly reassigned amongst the new recruits. All right, do a check on your weapons and ammunition, James ordered. Check your sights and set for 300 meters. His men rested their mage knocks against the firing slits and started making adjustments to the sights and ensuring their weapons were loaded. I don't think they'll attack today. James said while looking at the wristwatch. The sun will go down in three hours, and he highly doubts that the enemy will attack in the dark, especially after marching through the forest and melting snow without resting. Sure enough, UAV reported the enemy had stopped roughly two kilometers away from the pass, hiding inside a forest and started to make camp, and learning from their previous experience, the campsites were spread out amongst the forest and no longer clustered together. Even the number of sentries were doubled. All right, the blue boys are hunkering down in the forest for the night, James said to his section. Get some shut-eye as much as possible. We'll rotate watch tonight. Some of the marines lay down against the cold, hard concrete to rest, while the others stood watching the forest, hoping to see something. James ducked out of the exit of the bunker built inside the walls and headed towards the command post at the rear. The defenders were all situated inside the walls behind a layer of reinforced concrete, rather than the exposed top. As he passed by the second defensive wall, named Beta, he glanced up at the towering railgun turrets, where dozens of engineers and techs were like ants, doing their best to get the guns operational before the enemy attacks. He entered the concrete bunker set into the mountainside, where three marine sentries stood guarding the sandbag checkpoint. After passing inspection, he entered the steel door and found another two sentries stationed at the end of the 50-meter-long corridor, wide enough for only two men to walk side by side. He nodded to the two sentries before entering another steel door with another two more guards on the other side. Before entering another steel door with another two more guards on the other side. Before entering the main Sawtooth Mountain Defense Command Center. Dozens of display screens salvaged from the ship lined one side of the wall where live imagery was being broadcasted. A large tactical plot table sat in the middle of the room, surrounded by commanders and section leaders as they discussed strategy on the map. Elves and human operators in marine digital camo uniforms sat in front of consoles and computers, 
operating the systems and speaking into their headsets. He joined a group of commanders in the middle of the room and listened to the discussion that they were having. Master Sergeant Pike was addressing everyone at the table. Here is how we're going to kick their rears. End of chapter. Chapter 78. Rematch of the Pass. Watch your front. Make your shots count. James yelled over the roars of Major Knox, his throat sore from the thick gun smoke he inhaled in. Aim low! Aim low! The recoil of the M1 Major Knox was a lot stronger and powerful compared to the smokeless chemical propellant of the modern firearms. During trials of the M1 Major Knox, it was found that the force of recoil tends to kick the muzzle up slightly. Therefore, during training, the instructors drilled into the recruits to fire low, to compensate for the powerful recoil. James leaned onto the butt of his mage lock and peered down the sights, waiting for the dirty gun smoke to clear. He led his sights slightly before an orc trying to cross no man's land, aiming roughly at the area where the estimated the orc would reach. As the smoke cleared, he quickly readjusted his aim and squeezed the trigger, and was rewarded immediately with a painful kick in his shoulder, followed by a loud bark and a dense cloud of dirty smoke, and a 6.5mm steel-jacketed lead bullet weighing 13.3 grams took almost a second to travel between the shortish 300 meters and kissed the upper torso of the charging orc that he fired at. The orc's thick hide proved no resistance against the spinning heavy lead bullet, entering through its chest wall and shattering its upper ribs and of the orc, before mushrooming and fragmenting into two pieces, with one piece spiraling downwards and out through the back, missing the rear ribs and leaving the fist size exit wound. The other continued on a slight angle, ripping into the upper left lung before lodging into the scapula. The orc toppled backwards with a war cry cut off in a goggle. They spent a fragment exited from its back, hit the bruised his companion behind him before both of them went down in a tangle of bodies. The dazed orc sat and rubbed the area of his belly where the spent bullet had hit him, and got up and screamed a war cry, before another bullet blew half of his arm off, leaving it dangling by the remains of his bicep muscles and skin. The orc screamed in anger and pain, tumbling on his butt again. He picked up the discarded saber and cut off the remains of his crippled arm. Gritting his teeth, the orc growled and continued charging, albeit slower than before, while leaking blackish blood from his wound, joining the rest of its kind in rushing towards the walls. The narrow passageway of the maze-like barbed wire barricades funneled the orcs into a killing zone that tried to navigate through. Some of the orcs attempted to climb over the barbed wire, only to have the barbs trapped and tangling them, while others hacked and slashed the barricades. The marine defenders made good use of the situation to fire into the massed orcs, bending them down. The passageway soon became slippery with blood and a small mound of bodies formed around the barbed wires, where the smarter orcs took cover under the fallen bodies of their own kin. At the rear, dozens of crew-looking orc catapults were carried into the effective throwing range, and stones mined from the slopes of Sawtooth Mountain were flung onto the walls, a majority of them falling short and crashing their own kind. Oka, the fierce, stood on top of the boulder to be better view of the battlefield. 
In the distance, cloudy smoke constantly erupted from the walls, obscuring the defenders from view. He growled. This was the third attack of the day, and with only a few hours of daylight left, and still no progress, it had been two days since they started their attack, and yet they couldn't break those soft-skinned defenses. Have Aldous discovered what spells the Tricurse soft-skins are using? Oka turned and glared at the elder shaman covered in a hooded cloak made of animal skins. Mysterious symbols were painted with blood adorned all over the cloak, while chaotic tattoos that make the eyes crawl could be seen on the shaman's exposed hands. More bearer, Urka, the shaman greeted with his palm facing Urka. Elders have no idea what magic or power are being used. The low, raspy voice came from the hooded figure. The spirits are confused. Confused? Urka leapt down from the boulder, landing heavily on the wet, rocky ground, causing a slightly crack to appear from the hard ground. Urka thinks you'd better talk to the spirits more. Those cursed magic is killing our clansmen in the hundreds, and your clansmen couldn't even reach the walls. Urka glared at the rear of the catapults, where rows of armed blue-coated softskins stood watching, with more others seated leisurely on their mounts. At this point in time, he hated those blue softskins more than the enemy at the walls. If it wasn't the chief taking his job in exchange for winter supplies, they wouldn't have to bow their heads to the cursed weaklings. A trio of soft skins riding all those lean, wingless dragons rose up before him, looking down at Urka from the perches of their mounts. The disdain look of the soft skin further infuriated Urka, but he kept his temper in, narrowing his eyes and the lead rider who was dressed in a fancy ornate armor with spectacular red plume of his helmet. Why are you still not pressing the attack? The plump-looking softskin asked, using his nose to look at Urka. My lord expects you to have taken the walls already. Why are you still struggling here? From the magic scrying, clearly, the rebels only have less than 400 defenders. Are the Yorkin so weak that they can't win with a force of less than a tenth of your numbers? He sneered at the gathered Orkin. Orca understands. Orca lowered his head, his eyes glittering dangerously. Suddenly, he had an idea. Keeping his head down, he grinned wickedly. Orca show great lord victory. Come, come. He urged the fat soft skin on his dragon to follow him while speaking to the common. Orca's army attacking in huge numbers now. Oka gestured around him while leading the softskins forward towards the front line. Come see, here be the best view of victory. Hm. It's good to see that you finally see seriously attacking. This lord shall witness your victory then. The noble sniffed his nose and nudged his dragon to follow Oka. His two retainers followed obediently behind. Here, here! Oka gestured excitedly, keeping his head low and bowing and scraping as he hated mounted softskin. He led them to well within the view of the pass, the glamour of battle for all to see. Lord Dyla, a noble son from the capital, joined Duke Sturm's army for adventure, war, and riches. As he came to the battlefield, the stories of glory and glamour were vastly different from what the bards sang and told in the gentlemen's clubhouses in the capital. He didn't expect the march to be so, uh, dirty. Mud was everywhere, in his trousers, underclothes, boots, and stockings. 
The other Orkin were crude, barbarous, dumb, low-life beasts, smelled worse than anything he ever knew. He tried to avoid as much contact with the Orkin as possible to prevent the smell from contaminating him. As the dumb Orkin led him to the rise in the front, a view suddenly appeared before him. The battlefield in all its glory could be seen clearly from where he rode his dragon. He could see the walls blurred by the smoke of their spells, to the Orkin storming and dying across the narrow passageway to reach the walls. The war cries and the echoes of the thunder rolled over him. He felt his blood rising. How spectacular! Lord Dyla whispered to himself. He stared at the battlefield, daydreaming himself as a general and giving orders to hundreds of thousands of soldiers under his command, when a sudden buzz and a wet smack sounded, painting his escorts wet with blood and bits of bone and brain matter. Corporal Drake, hidden in one of the squat armored wall towers, tilted the head away from his scope, as he gently worked a bolt with his specially customized rifle. Good girl, Private Cont whispered, his face glued to the tripod mounted by binoculars. Who, in their right mind, wears such a colorful plume to battle? It's like painting a bullseye on the back and telling us to shoot them. Drake gave him a small smile. A few months back, thinking that Cont would have loved to wear a large colorful plume on his helmet and parade around. Now, after learning about sniping, his mindset had greatly changed. He pushed the bolt back, chambering a new round of his new toy, the M3 Mage Killer, the anti-material rifle, fitted with a 10 times detachable scope at a 45 degree tilt sight, a deployable bipod with 29 inches or 74 centimeters long free-floating heavy barrel with an integrated muzzle brake. It weighed in at 11.2 kilograms, unloaded and fired a 50 caliber round, 12.7 millimeters. It had a detachable box magazine of five-round capacity. Using the same design as the mage locks, the firer worked the bolts of the chamber and around to be fired. The M3 mage killer had a muzzle velocity of 853 meters per second and an effective range of up to 1,100 meters. That's a kill shot at 674 meters away, Kant reported, continued to sight down the group of the tiny rise. Do you want to take another down? Drake peered back at the rise, seeing the orcs had either rolled for cover or scattered away, leaving the panicking dragons with half a corpse still mounted on it. The two escort-like soldiers were trying to figure out what had happened. Still, and Drake felt sorry for them. Think that should be good enough for now. Let's see if they are any trolls or exposed catapult gunners for us to shoot at. Kant nodded and continued to scout around his bino. Contact left of the rise next to the catapult. Eleven o'clock. Drake shifted his body and spotted the exposed catapult. I got a target left of the rise, loading a catapult. That's your target. Check parallax and mull. Kant looked through the bino and spotted the target Drake was sighting on. Drake adjusted his scope and read the mull on his scope. One, four, six. Kant double-checked his own readings and found it to be within 1.4, two, and he keyed in the data into the tablet's ballistic software. Check level, hold over 2.8. Drake took a breath and held it. Ready. Left. Point two. Kant ordered, giving the one destination. Bam! Good hit. Urka grunted with barely suppressed glee as he saw from the corner of his eye how the useless piece of meat exploded. 
He long had suspected that the enemy in the past had their magic aimed here, and since he'd lost several war leaders here, he found out the wearing anything that appeared to show strength and power will always get killed by some mysterious magic. He purposely led the soft skin to open spot and stood where the dragon was direction of the pass. A sharp thunder, different from the customary roaring thunders rolling down the pass as he stood up to where they laid prone. Surprisingly, the rest of the Orkins were showing good humor as they watched the dumb softskin get killed. The other two softskins finally managed to get the panicking dragons under control, and casting a look of Urka, they scampered back to the rear of the lines, leading the dragon with the lower half of the armored body still attached to the saddle and stirrups. Once out of range, Urka and the surrounding Orkins hooted with laughter, throwing obscene gestures at the retreating softskins. After a while, feeling slightly better, Urka turned his attention back to the pass, wondering how he should crack this hard nut. Finally, he gave up, thinking there is no point in letting more of his clansmen get injured or killed. He turned to one of the Orkin to his side. Sound the retreat, he loaded up the sun position in the sky, and told the elder to prepare the ritual for tonight. End of chapter Chapter 79 the ritual. The mournful wailing of a horn sounded over the battlefield, and the attacking orcs paused in their attacks and retreated. As they pulled back, some of the orcs even kicked their fallen companions, waking them up. Those fallen orcs with wounds that would have ordinarily killed a normal person just stood up and rubbed their heads grumpily before limping back to their lines. Major Frank stood inside the Sawtooth Mountain Pass Defense Command Center, watching the, from the cameras over watching the pass. He noticed an orc with his arm blown off and a gory exit wound on his back, woke up from the battlefield when his own kin gave him a good kick. A groggily shook its head and stood up, scratching his armpit as a good hand and stumbled after the rest. Frank frowned as he watched similar scenes happening throughout the battlefield. It seems like the orcs don't die so easy, Frank pointed out the Master Sergeant Pike, standing at the tactical table. Pike looked up from the map and glanced at the display before commenting, Bloody things just soak up all the damage, they're like a freaking bullet sponge. Looks like about a hundred or so dead, maybe less than three, four hundred wounded. Frank did a quick calculation on the images he saw on the display. They are retreating, looks like the battle is over for the day. Pike came to next to Frank, staring at the display. So far, there isn't any serious casualties, except for some dim frecks who don't know how to duck when the rocks from the catapults hit the wall. Those catapults are quite irritating, Frank highlighted the dozens of man-portable catapults on the screen that the orcs were carrying back. The crudely made catapults were more like very simple trebuchets made out of wooden spars lashed together and using muscle power to throw 40 to 50 kilogram rocks by having two or more of the orcs acting as counterweights, pulling the ropes while the another orc held onto the basket while holding the ammunition of choice. Once enough forces was being applied to the poor orc could no longer hold the basket, they released the basket throwing the contents towards the target, sometimes with the unfortunate orc along as he couldn't release his hands in time, much to the enjoyment and laughter of his peers. Rotate the men for some rest and food, Frank said. Double the watch tonight. I got a feeling that they might change their tactics or try some funny soon. 
Send the men out to clear out the fields and replace the barbed wires that need to be repaired. Pike saluted and left, smiling as he watched the low green lieutenant had matured over the past few months and is now a major. Empire Camp, first of the follow-old regiment of swords, the Duke's own. Inside a gaudy-looking tent large enough to house twenty to thirty people, Duke Stern hunkered down in a beautifully carved chair made out of dark wood. The tent was decorated lavishly with other furniture made of dark wood, making it a fully set, which probably was worth over a thousand gold coins. While thick and rich carpets covered the tent floor, a small gold brazier kept the cold away. But with the crowd of officers surrounding the large table in the middle of the tent, the atmosphere inside the felt stifling instead. My lord! Commander Ellison of the 3rd Fellow Fall Regiment of Swords spoke. The Orkin had been stuck in a stalemate with the rebels at the pass for more than three days. Give me two days and my regiment and we'll take the pass for you. Tch. The dark lean elf armoured in an ornate plate with markings and colours identifying himself as a lancer, scorned Ellison. The distinguished 3rd Imperial Lancers had been wiped out fighting the rebels at the pass and that is without any defensive walls in place. What do you think your 3,000 men can do with your better peers fail to do so? Commander Ellison growled at Lucia, the commander of the second fellow for Lancers. You're impertinent fool, shut your trap. Who are your betters here? Just stating a fact, well, if you want to rush up and die, I shouldn't stop you. Lucia gave a dismissive wave at Lawson who turned with red with rage and stood up, going for his sword. Enough! Duke Sturm roared, banging the dark wood table in front of him, scattering the silver plates of meat and fruits. Cease this nonsense now! Both Lotion and Luisa bowed and gave their apologies while sending glares at each other. The rest of the officers just shrugged at those two were always going at each other's throats. We learned something in the past when dealing with these rebels. A scholar, looking while wearing a monocle, stood and said, Since the last time we fought with them, they appeared to be capable of casting multiple level 10 spells simultaneously. Also, it appears that the Thunderstick artifacts have changed. They now spew large amounts of smoke. What are you trying to say here, Dolar? Alosin impatiently grumbled. Get to the point. I am trying to say that the rebels are much stronger than before. The scholar Dollar, dressed in a dark blue trench coat with silver runic markings, replied, We must be careful this time. Lord Strum nodded. He had already taken a few more measures compared to previously. His lifeguards ringed his tent. His sentry wards were placed to cover all approaches to the camp. Even his own tent, spells were woven to protect him from any attacks both physical and magical. The Orkin commander had informed me that they are going to cast the ritual tonight. Sturm told his men, who started to whisper amongst themselves uncomfortably, Let the dogs have their chance, then we see. Yes, my lord. The men around the table rose and saluted. Ork, Orkin camp. The darkness in the tent was so dark that the light appeared to have been absorbed. Oka couldn't see anything as he was led into the center of the tent by unknown hands. Oka the fierce, you have come for the ritual. A rasping voice came from the darkness. But to gain power, you must sacrifice something. What will you give? 
I will give the fallen enemies as a sacrifice. Oka intoned, followed by the ancient ritual. My blood for life and my bones for strength. For that, our ancestors will rise to wreak havoc amongst the living. The elder finished the ceremony and Oka felt hands leading him out. Oka left the tent. The elder started chanting, followed by the other shaman seated in a circle. The dark red glow appeared under the feet and a magic circle slowly lit up the reddish glow. In the center of the magic circle was a block of black obsidian, where a naked elf was bounded and gagged. The naked elf squirmed desperately, trying to free his bonds, his eyes wide in terror as he jerked left and right. The chanting rose to a high frenzy, and the shamans, using thigh bones of people, drummed against the dirt floor, beating a tempo that drove the captive elf insane. As the magical glow grew brighter and brighter, the elf's eyes bulged out, turning red as blood vessels ruptured. Blood started flowing from his ears and nose. He arched his back at an impossible angle and his muscles spasmed, a wordless scream raising in his throat. The tempo of the drums and the chaotic chanting grew faster and faster, and suddenly the elf exploded into a cloud of bloody mist leaving behind his bones and organs, which started to rot away. And the tent fell silent completely, and darkness returned. The elder shaman strolled up to the remains and dug out the rotted heart, which still beat slowly, and placed it into a small pouch. Burn the remains, make sure all is ash. The elder instructed and left the tent with the pouch. Oka stood outside the tent, waiting with several warriors in a semicircle. Is it done? The elder nodded, holding the stained pouch up. We are ready. Come. Oka turned to lead the way. His warriors and the elder followed behind him. They picked their way through the roots and the wet soil of the forest under the blazing torches of the warriors before arriving at a large clearing. His warriors spread out and their torches illuminating the clearing, bodies of the fallen orkin laid in a pile. We found where the Empire buried their dead in the previous time that they were here. He gestured to the wet soil. Wonderful. The elder rasped and started wandering around the clearing before stopping and pointing at a spot on the ground. Dig a hole here, as tall as the other Orkin. Oka nodded, gesturing his warriors to work. He stood back and folded his arms as he waited. Soon, over the span of a glass, a hole was dug. Several rotted bones could be seen within the sides of the hole. The elder glided over and examined the hole, circling it twice and seemingly satisfied, dropping the pouch in and started chanting. Oka felt goosebumps and a chill down his spine as the healers chant. He fought back the urge to vomit and braced his legs firmly and tried to ignore the chanting. Suddenly, one of the Orkin warriors cried out, holding his head and ran around in circles, before ramming his head into a nearby tree trunk with such force that his skull split open and bits of brain matter stained the trunk. The other Orkin's legs shook with pee dripping down it. Just as it started, the chant stopped, and the elder appeared to smile at Urka within a hooded cloak. The elder drifted over to the fallen Orkin and paused over the cracked skull poking the inside with a bony finger. Hmm, the elder studied the spilled brains and declared, The spirits approved. This is a good omen. Oka gripped his fists to stop them from shaking and gathered his voice before saying, 
Is it done? While the others recovered from the insanity-inducing chanting. Some fell down on weakened legs, while others vomited or peed themselves. They avoided looking at the elder and the unfortunate kin. Yes, yes, the elder responded, as its fingers continued to poke around the skull, leaving traces of grey matter on his fingers. It puts his fingers into the hood, seemingly tasting the fresh brains, before turning around and gestured to the soil. Good, good, all is done. It's just a matter of time now. Oka nodded, his strength returning, and he felt the soil beneath him's feet start to squirm and move. He quickly stepped back and kept alert, watching the soil started to crumble. Several moans suddenly came up from the pile of Orkin dead, and the Orkin warrior who committed suicide jerked up on the four floors and stood up, its movement like a puppet. Yeah, my children! The elder's antics appeared to be like a child as it clapped its hand excitedly. Come! The dead Orkins, heeding the elder's words, stood up and shuffled over their stand in front of the elder. More rotted skeletal hands erupted from the soil and dug their way out. Orkin and Empire Dead slowly gathered in a huge mass. Oka stared in fascination as he only heard tales and stories of the undead servants of the Orkins' elders. The glassy-eyed Orkin stared without expression ahead, while the rotted bodies of the Empire soldiers, most of them just bones and scraps of cloth clinging to their skeletal frames, stood awaiting the word of the Elder. It is time, Oka said to the Elder and saluted with more respect than usual. With an army of undead, all they needed to do was wait till the defenders exhausted themselves before the Orkin pushed it in. Send them against the pass now. They will be perfect for a night attack. Spirit warriors, come. Tonight, you're alive again. End of chapter. Chapter 80. Zombie Mode. Mills dozed off with his head resting against his helmet, sprawled off in the corner of the bunker walls. He was having a good dream about having a buffet feast, gorging himself with free frau cutscenes of shellfish, drinking wine and champagne. Lance Corporal Mills, he heard someone calling him in his dream and snapped awake, instantly gripping his mage lock and alert. What? Mills stared at the dark figure squatting next to him. Damn, I was about to start in that lobster. He wiped the drool from his cheeks. Lob star, the marine elf cocked his head in confusion. Huh? Never mind, Mull stood up and stretched. What is it? We heard something coming from the slopes, the elves reported. Shh, here it's again. Mills leaned against the firing slits of the wall and listened hard, but he couldn't hear anything. He looked at the intent look on the fellow Melvin Marine and having his twitching ears. He wondered if the ears could have a higher frequency than humans, like a dog. Nope, can't hear nor see crap. Shh, there it is again. The elf insisted, pointing out of the darkness. Sounds like many hands scratching. Mills concentrated, then again he caught the sound of a piece of rock being kicked. Wait here. He activated the comms. Thundercliff, this is Alpha 4, come in over. Thundercliff, send. Alpha 4, reporting possible night probe of my location, over. Roger, stand by. Moles turned to oversee the view. 
Um, I think we better close our eyes first. And just as he said, the two stabbing beams of white light cut through the darkness, illuminating the terrain in front of the alpha wall. Ow! Mole sprinched as his bright lights killed his night vision. Oh my god! The elf next to Mills cried out, the elves having better eyes than the humans, and using a phrase that they learned from watching movies and dramas. Mills blinked his eyes to adjust the sudden brightness and looked at the passage. Freck me, what are those? The passageway appeared to be crawling with shadowy figures, and some even appeared to have climbed up from the near vertical slopes next to the passageway. Undead, it's the Orkin's vile dark magic, Neof said, his eyes looking unnaturally large in the reflected light. The two spotlights swung downwards and lit the ground in front of Alpha Wall with a whistle blew. Contact, Mull shouted out finally after he got over his surprise at seeing bodies missing limbs and skeletons crawling and shambling towards the wall. He keyed his comms to Drake's connection. Hey, wake up, it's COD zombie mode, woohoo! The marines around Mills looked at him like he was crazy. What? You guys didn't play zombie mode in COD? Damn, you guys need to play some more later. Mills promised them, leaning his mage lock out of the firing slit and taking aim. Go for headshots. A whistle blew in the distance and jets of flame from the mage locks from one of the other sections stabbed out in the early hours of the morning as the marines prepared to defend against the new threat. The smoke from the guns was carried away by the night winds howling through the pass, allowing the men and owls to fire rapidly with any smoke obstructions. Mills fired fast as accurately with the mage lock as best he could. He personally found the mage lock fun to fire. The kick of the recoil, further bruising his shoulder, Mill's customized mage lock comes with a two times magnified red dot sight that he personally installed and built into the frame of his mage lock. He aimed the red dot at the chin of a slow walking rotting corpse and squeezed the trigger. Feeling the butt hammering against his shoulder and smelling a hint of urine smell from the gun smoke, the bullet penetrated the upper jaw of the dead orc, shattering the teeth and bone, before blowing out the upper spinal cervical, dropping the orc like a puppet with its strings cut off. Headshot! Aim for the head! Mills yelled as he noticed the shot's placement on the bodies of the zombies. Come on, you're marines! You can shoot better than that! And he put his word into action, dropping another zombie with a headshot. They are just standing there for you to shoot at. How great is that? How can you miss? At this point, more spotlights had lit up, turning the passageway as bright as day. The undead appeared in many kinds of fresh or corpses to rattling skeletons. Even dead animals would see seen in the mix. A fresh corpses move faster while the rotted skeletons move slower. And a bullet to the head ended all life regardless of if it was living or dead. How many are there? Despite the slow, jerky movements of the undead, the defenders were not killing them as fast enough. As normally a bullet would, would have incapacitated anyone, maybe not an orc, but the undead, short of destroying their head, continued in the determined, relentless approach to the walls. As they undead hit the walls, they found no way to enter nor climb, the concrete walls were angled at 25 degrees outwards, with the tops of the walls rounded and topped off with barbed wire. 
The undead tried to climb up the smooth concrete walls, but their hands and fingers could not find any purchase. The undead hammered on their rotting fists and bony hands against the heavily armored cargo doors, in a vain effect to break the gate. Those still functioning vocal calls growled and moaned, while the skeletons rattled their loose jaws. Then the chief to all units, cease fire, cease fire. The call came through the comms. Cease fire, cease fire, Mills yelled at his team, as only section leaders worn in the comms gear. They were thinking of equipping the rest of the men with simpler comms units, but they did not have the time to research and develop anything yet. The men ceased fire, rubbing sword and bruised shoulders and checked the ammunition. Some of the smarter elves bounded their rifles but with a soft hide or cloth to lessen the impact from the recoil. Yet, still, from the constant firing of the past few days, everyone's shoulder turned blue-black from the impacts. What now, Corp? the men asked, watching more and more of the undead massing at the bottom of the walls. Mills removed his helmet and scratched his head, rubbing the soot stain from his face. Well, no point in wasting ammo on those things since they can't come in. He peered down the firing slits and looked at the wriggling mass of arms and reaching upwards. He spit down. Headshot! Wait. Mills held up his hand, gesturing the men to keep quiet and listening to these comms. Oh, sounds fun. All right, there's going to be some interesting happening soon. Mills grinned, looking at the undead. Just watch the show. The men looked at each other and shrugged, knowing that the section leader has weird clerks and followed suit, gathering at the firing slits and watching the undead, waiting for stuff to happen. Not long after, a sudden explosion of flames ripped through the masked undead, setting them on fire. One after another, balls of fire erupted amongst the dead, turning them into char. Holy smoke, is that what happened to me? Moles laughed. Damn, I'm a tough to survive that crap. The spells cast by the mages reaped havoc amongst the undead, and before long most of the gathered undead was once again properly dead, and with the rearmost creatures turned and retreated back into the night. Sawtooth Mountain Defense Command Center Well, that was a new and unexpected... Sergeant Pike puffed out his cheeks. I totally wasn't expecting that. Me neither, Major Frank responded, as both of them stood near the tactical table, staring at the displays in the command pit. Damn, are they really undead, like zombies and skeletons? Every time my brain adjusts to the crap on this planet has, it throws a curveball at me, Pike sighs. I really like to get Magister Thorn here to consult with all this voodoo and occult crap. Roll sanity check, please. In the words of Dr. Sharon, Frank grinned, I can only imagine this planet like some fantasy game. And yes, I think we need Magister Thorne's expertise here. Frank turned to one of the communications operators and informed him to contact Thorne and bring him over ASAP. Do you want to call Joseph over? He might have some insight on this. Frank asked Pike as he leaned over the communication operator's shoulder. No... Let him complete his opposite training course. Pike shook his head. We can still handle this. Frank nodded and returned his attention to the operator, giving his instructions. How is the new task force doing? Looking good from the screen, sir. Pike responded as he focused on the screen displaying the front alpha wall. Looks like the undead is getting barbecued nice and crisp. And the rest are retreating. Frank chipped in. 
watching the remaining undead retreat away from the glare of the spotlights. Seems like they're under control of someone. Or something, Pike added. What's that thing called? Neggy or something? A necromancer on one of the operators helpfully gave the correct words. I think that's what you call or thinking of, Top. Yep, that's the word. Thanks, Pike snapped his fingers. A necromancer. I read that on the book. Our captain is forcing everyone to read it. Hmm, if there is as you said a necromancer, then this will be a big problem. Frank frowned as he leaned over the map. Look, we are here, the enemy is roughly here. He pointed at the location in the forest. We know the Empire buried the dead here. He pointed to another location, roughly west of where the pass was. I don't know how they are reanimating their dead, but from the looks of things, it appears they took the Empire's dead and raised them, including their recent dead. Frank folded his arms and continued his analysis. Now that means that they can reanimate the dead, no matter the time frame, and the numbers will favor them greatly, as they can bring back those that died with assaulting the walls. Not only that, Pike interrupted, look at screen 6. The view on the display showed the dead clearly rotting carcass of some sort of deer-like creature. They can bring back animals too. Oh, Freck. Wait, what about the flying dragons we shut down? Frank exclaimed. And the dead orcs we retrieved. We retrieved the bodies of the dragons, remember? Pike reminded him. We beheaded the orcs to prevent them from playing possum, so that should prevent them from raising. Dr. Sharon's gonna get a fit when she sees the headless corpses. All right, damn, I've forgotten all about it. Rank shook his head. At least we know that destroying the head will permanently put them back between being properly dead again. While fire works as long as you burn them down completely, or if the head is destroyed in the process. We need to build some flamers. Pike grinned. He loved this kind of crap. Issue is, what do we use for fuel? Damn, I'm feeling like making some napalm now. Frank grinned along Pike's excitement. Well, one at a time, we will need to rely on the new task force to handle the zombies. No point in wasting ammunition on them. We had stockpiled over 900,000 rounds of full of mage locks and various ammo dumps. Pike said, it should be more than enough for our defensive needs. Good, Frank nodded. Keep the daily rotation schedule. Let the relief force take over in the morning and brief them of the new threat. For now, let the undead cluster truck together, then get the 101's first ATI to nuke them. Why waste ammo when we have unlimited fireballs? Frank pointed out. Also, get the post-combat recovery detail to behead and burn all the corpses from now on. True, now we need Thorn to find a way to stop this. Pike agreed and added. Also, one more point. Whose magic is it? The orcs or the empire? End of chapter. And that, my friends, concludes this video. I hope that you enjoyed. If you did, please consider supporting the author from the link down below. Otherwise, if you wish to support this channel, there are numerous ways to do so, like liking, subscribing, and possibly even becoming a patron. Otherwise, the easiest way would be to share. And until the next video, I hope that you all have a good one, and I'll see you then. Cheers.